I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. (music) Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. This is part six of Hamlet, so grab your copy and open to Act 3, Scene 3, and we'll begin. So the last time we saw our characters, Hamlet had put his plan into action. He had shown Gertrude and Claudius this play, laying out his father's murder, and Claudius had gotten up and stormed out of the room. And this seems like confirmation of everything Hamlet thought, and it was really having its desired effect. He had heard from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern that Claudius was really upset. He had gotten the summons from his mother to come talk to her before bedtime. He's thrown a bomb into the middle of the court, basically, and he's hoping they'll make mistakes. He's finally told Rosencrantz and Guildenstern what he thinks of them, and he's made plans to go tell his mother what he thinks of her. And in his last monologue in the previous scene, we really get the sense that he's so keyed up, he's worried he might do some violence to his mother. But we still don't know where he stands on Claudius. Is he actually going to go through with it and kill the guy? Is he going to try to? And what happens now that Claudius knows that he knows? This is where the play really starts to gallop, and you can feel it in the rhythm of these scenes. So at the beginning of Act 3, Scene 3, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern have gone back to the king to tell him what Hamlet's talking about. And so it's another one of these kinetic scenes that starts midway through a conversation. And Claudius is clearly shaken. He says, I like him not, nor stands it safe with us to let his madness range. So yeah, obviously he doesn't like Hamlet, but that's not what this line means. It means, I don't like his behavior. Nor stands it safe, and it doesn't seem safe to us. Notice how he switches from the I at the beginning of the sentence to the us, that royal we at the end of the sentence. Like it isn't just not safe for me, it's not safe for the whole kingdom. And notice those repeated hard S's of stands and safe. And it isn't safe to do what? To let his madness range. Range in this case means like to roam freely or kind of do whatever it wants, almost like an animal going free across the land. This is a real place of danger. And the thing is, Claudius can't tell them the real reason why. He can't say, oh, by the way, I killed the last king, so Hamlet is going to get revenge on me. No, he has to talk about danger to the kingdom in general. This is a guy who's clearly spooked. So he's going to put his plan into effect. Remember the one he was talking to Polonius about earlier? He says, therefore, prepare you. Get ready. I, your commission, will forthwith dispatch, and he to England shall along with you. He's doing that thing where he moves a verb to the end of the line. The real order is something like, I will forthwith dispatch your commission. A commission, by the way, is an official document that grants certain powers to the bearer. So he can send them to England with a document to the king of England saying... These people stand in for me. Do whatever this document tells you to do. Dispatch means to prepare or write. So he's going to go make this document. And forthwith just means at once, right away. And he to England shall along with you. Shall do what shall go along with you. So he's sending Hamlet to England with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern as his minders. So that's the plan. But then he can't stop talking about how much this bothers him. He says, the terms of our estate may not endure hazards so near us as doth hourly grow out of his lunacies. The terms of our estate basically means the state of my position as king. So it's like his whole rule is threatened by Hamlet. And what can it endure? Hazard so near us. Hazard just being another word for danger, but a much more exciting word. So near us, like the danger is getting really close to us now. As doth hourly grow out of his lunacies. It's a great choice of adverb there. It's not just that it grows out of his lunacies. It's that it grows hourly. Like every hour it gets worse and worse. So you get this sense of escalation. Some texts, by the way, will say browse instead of lunacies, which is a more personal anatomical way to say it. And they're seeing the king getting worked up and Guildenstern and Rosencrantz being good wannabe courtiers. They try to calm him down and tell him he's right. Guildenstern says, we will ourselves provide. 
provide like provisions, like we'll get all of our stuff ready. And then he adds, most holy and religious fear it is to keep those many, many bodies safe that live and feed upon your majesty. Fear in this case isn't being scared of something. It's more like care or concern. And they butter him up by calling that concern holy and religious, almost as though he's the Pope. And what is he right to be concerned about? To keep those many, many bodies safe. I really like that repetition of many, many. He probably just didn't have another word, but it's a really cool way to amplify it. And notice he doesn't say people, he says bodies, which makes it more tactile. These people that live and feed upon your majesty, upon meaning sort of thanks to or because of. So in other words, by protecting himself, he's protecting everyone else. And Rosencrantz goes on to clarify exactly what he's talking about. He says, the single and peculiar life is bound with all the strength and armor of the mind to keep itself from noyance, but much more that spirit upon whose wheel depends and rests the lives of many. And the word peculiar doesn't mean strange as we use it now. It means private or particular. So each individual person is bound, is required with all the strength and armor of the mind. It's a cool military image, as though the mind is the strong body and the armor that covers it to keep itself from annoyance. Annoyance being short for annoyance, but here it means harm or injury, much stronger than our sense of annoyance. So it's every single person's job to use their mind to guard them from harm or injury, but much more that spirit, in other words, that soul or person, upon whose wheel depends, upon whose well-being depends and rests the lives of many. So it's even more important that a person who has a lot of people depending on them keep themselves safe. And he goes on to explain this with this very poetic image. He says, The cess of majesty dies not alone, but like a gulf doth draw what's near it with it. Cess is short for cessation, stopping, in other words, death, of majesty, of a royal person. Dies not alone, but like a gulf. A gulf is like a whirlpool in the ocean. It doth draw what's near it with it. So if you're floating along in the ocean and there's a big whirlpool spinning next to you, it draws everything around it in. So the king is like that whirlpool. And if he dies, everyone around him dies. And then Rosencrantz has another image for it. He says, it is a massy wheel fixed on the summit of the highest mount to whose huge spokes 10,000 lesser things are mortised and adjoined, which when it falls, each small annexment, petty consequence attends the boisterous ruin. So massy is another way of saying massive or huge with this giant wheel fixed on the summit of the highest mount. Fixed meaning sort of set or placed on the summit on the top of the highest mount, mountain. So if you can imagine like a giant wagon wheel sitting on top of a mountain and then to whose huge spokes 10,000 lesser things are mortised and adjoined. Lesser just meaning smaller. And mortised is another way of saying joined or attached. It's a carpentry term. You can mortise two boards together. It's like a tongue and groove joining. So it's another way of saying that word adjoined next to it. So attached to this wagon wheel spokes are 10,000 smaller objects, which when it falls, when it starts rolling down the hill, each small annexment, an annexment is something that's attached to it, petty consequence, petty meaning little like petite, and consequence being like sequel. It's literally the word for the thing that follows it attends the boisterous ruin. Attends just means goes along with it. Because it's attached to it, it has to roll along with it. And boisterous doesn't just mean loud or exciting, as we would use it. It means something more like chaotic or crazed. And ruin is destruction. It's that same idea we have. So you can almost picture 10,000 hamsters attached to a wagon wheel. And when it rolls all the way down this mountain, nothing good has happened to the hamsters. In this case, the hamsters are the people of Denmark. And the king is the giant wagon wheel. So when he goes down, everybody goes down. And Rosencrantz sums up his beautiful poetic speech. Never alone did the king sigh, but with a general groan. We've seen that word general before. And this time it means like of the people at large. So when the king just does a simple sigh, he isn't alone in that. Everyone around him groans, which is a stronger sigh. So as much as the king suffers, everyone else suffers even more. 
And notice how Rosencrantz puts a little bow on the end of that beautiful speech with that rhyming couplet at the end. He's clearly very proud of this. So Claudius has listened to him. It's just confirmed everything he thought. And he says to them, arm you, I pray you, to this speedy voyage. Arm doesn't literally mean get weapons. It means prepare yourself. I pray you, I ask you, to this speedy voyage. Either speedy because it's going to be fast or more likely speedy because it has to happen right now. And he goes on, for we will fetters put upon this fear, which now goes too free-footed. You hear all those F sounds? This is the sound of a guy just spitting out words. Fetters, fear, free-footed. Fetters are restraints like handcuffs or leg irons. And fear here means something more like the thing that causes us to fear or worry, which now goes too free-footed, which now walks around too freely. It's a really cool adjective he's made up, free-footed. Fetters were literally like handcuffs for your legs. Footcuffs, I guess you could call them. So if this thing that causes him fear is running around freely, he's going to put fetters on it and stop it from running around freely. That's what this plan is for. And Rosencrantz jumps right on to finish his verse line. He says, we will haste us. In other words, we'll hurry to do that. And the speed of the scene continues when they run out and Polonius runs in because he has a time pressure now. He knows that Hamlet is coming to see his mother. Maybe he's out of breath. And he says to Claudius, my lord, he's going to his mother's closet. Remember, closet isn't just a bedroom. It's more like a private chamber. And what is he going to do? He says, behind the arras, I'll convey myself to hear the process. Here's that old plan again, an arras being like a wall hanging. I'll convey myself, I'll hide, or I'll place myself behind it to hear the process. Process is more like proceedings, you know, what goes on between them. And why is he going to do that? Because I'll warrant she'll tax him home. Warrant means I guarantee she'll tax him home. This has nothing to do with the IRS. Tax means to really go after him, chastise him. And home means harshly or thoroughly. She's going to go right after him. And he goes on. And as you said, and wisely was it said, tis meet that some more audience than a mother, since nature makes them partial, should o'erhear the speech of vantage. Now, was this actually Claudius's idea? Obviously, Polonius wants to suck up to him. So all that stuff about since this was your idea and you said it so wisely, but it's probably just Polonius's idea that he's ascribing to Claudius to make the king seem smarter. He says, tis meet, in other words, it's fitting or appropriate that some more audience than a mother. An audience here literally means hearer, like audio. So there should be more people listening than just his mother, since nature makes them partial. In other words, the natural love of a mother for her son makes her biased on his side, partial. So someone else should or hear the speech, their conversation. An advantage can mean in addition or, you know, beyond just his mother, but it can also mean to our advantage. So me listening in on this could be a big advantage to us. And he's obviously under a time pressure, so he says, Fare you well, my liege. Liege, again, being another way of saying a lord. It's that very high feudal term. I'll call upon you ere you go to bed and tell you what I know. So I'll come find you before you go to bed, and I'll tell you exactly what I know, what I've overheard from this conversation. And Claudius jumps right on to finish his verse line. Thanks, dear my lord. Which is actually a very respectful way to talk to him. King isn't required to call anyone my lord, but he's probably eager both to get him out of the room and to thank him for taking care of him because he is shaken. So shaken that when Polonius leaves the room and the king's alone, he has a soliloquy. And it's actually a pretty extraordinary speech for a few different reasons. One is, until this moment, we've only ever heard a soliloquy from Hamlet. You know, we're really on his side. And now suddenly Claudius, in theory the antagonist of the play, is going to be talking directly to us. And that's an incredible move on Shakespeare's part, and pretty ballsy, actually. He's just shifted our perspective on this play. The other thing is we have never received official confirmation that Claudius killed his brother. We just saw his reaction at the play. We had that little mini monologue way back when they were setting up the trap with Ophelia. So we've gotten hints here and there, but we've never heard from the man himself. And it's a really amazing speech. Of all people, Abraham Lincoln thought this was his favorite speech in the play, better than anything Hamlet has. And I'm not entirely sure that guy was wrong. I also really like his work on slavery, but that's unrelated. So listen to what he says. He says, Oh, my offense is rank. It smells to heaven. 
He starts out with the word rank, which is also a word that Hamlet used to describe him and his offense. Rank here means smelly, smelling terrible. It smells to heaven as though he's walking around like a normal person, but heaven, but God can smell what he's done on him. It's a pretty radical image, but I think it's a famous line now, so we're kind of not used to it anymore. And he goes on, it hath the primal eldest curse upon it, a brother's murder. Primal being another way of saying first, sort of like eldest. And what is that eldest curse? It's the curse of Cain, who kills his brother Abel in the first book of the Bible. It's the first recorded murder, and his curse is that he has to wander the earth sort of friendless. Because just like Cain, he killed his brother. So we thought of Claudius as this consummate political operative, this guy who can do no wrong. And what we're seeing now is a guy who's pretty tortured. But it's interesting why he's tortured. He goes on to say, Pray can I not, though inclination be as sharp as will. So he can't even pray to God, though inclination, though my intention or desire, be as sharp as will. Sharp here being sort of another way to say as strong as my will. In other words, his will to pray. Why can't he pray? Because my stronger guilt defeats my strong intent. And like a man to double business bound, I stand in pause where I shall first begin and both neglect. So he has a strong intent, an intention to pray, but his guilt is even stronger. Not his feeling of guilt, but his guiltiness, the fact that he did it. And notice how it intensifies from strong into stronger. And then he puts up this image to describe how he feels, like a man to double business bound. You have those strong B sounds, really making it hit. Double business means you have to do two tasks at exactly the same time, but that's impossible. I stand in pause. He just stands there doing nothing where I shall first begin to decide which of those two jobs he should do first and both neglect because he's standing there not doing anything, not knowing which to do first. He doesn't do either. So he wants to pray, but he can't pray because he's guilty. So he doesn't get either forgiveness or the spoils of what he did the crime for. So he's stuck. But then it occurs to him, what if this cursed hand were thicker than itself with brother's blood? Is there not rain enough in the sweet heavens to wash it white as snow? So there's that word curse again. So my hand is cursed. So what if it were thicker than itself with brother's blood? So if his hand is, I don't know, an inch and a half thick, what if there was another two inches of blood on top of it, that much of his brother's blood on his hand? Is there not rain enough? Rain being sort of a stand-in for purification. So aren't the heavens merciful enough to wash it white as snow? White snow being sort of a symbol of purity. So so what if I killed my brother in incredibly cold blood? Won't heaven take mercy on me and purify my soul and let me repent? He doubles down on that. He says, where to serves mercy but to confront the visage of offense? Yeah, what is mercy for? What does it even do except to confront the visage, the face of offense, of sin? That's the whole point of heavenly mercy. You commit a sin and then you ask for forgiveness from heaven. And he goes on. And what's in prayer but this twofold force? To be forestalled ere we come to fall or pardoned being down. So what's the point of prayer except for this twofold, this double force? And then you could really put a colon here because he's about to give the list of the two things that prayer is for. To be forestalled ere we come to fall. Forestalled means prevented before we come to fall, fall into sin. Or pardoned being down, being down like already having sinned. So that's all prayer is for. It either stops us from sinning in the first place or we ask for forgiveness after we did the sin. And that really heartens him. He says, then I'll look up. My fault is past. I'll look up, in other words, to God, to heavens. My fault is past. My fault is already committed. So all I'll do is ask for forgiveness. He might almost start to pray here, but then it hits him. But oh, what form of prayer can serve my turn? Serve my turn is an expression meaning meet my needs. So what can I say? Forgive me my foul murder? So is that what I'm going to pray? And he realizes that cannot be since I am still possessed of those effects for which I did the murder, my crown, my own ambition, and my queen. Yeah, that prayer isn't going to work since I'm still possessed. In other words, I'm still in possession of, I still have 
those effects for which I did the murder. Effects being like the benefits. It's like if you broke into a house, they're the things you stole. And here are the reasons why he did the murder. My crown, my own ambition, and my queen. So he did it to become king. He did it for Gertrude. And he did it because he was ambitious. And he still has all of those things. May one be pardoned and retain the offense? Offense here is basically the profit of your crime, the spoils of it. You can't be pardoned if you still have the things you did the crime for. And he doesn't want to give those up. He realizes, in the corrupted currents of this world, offense's gilded hand may shove by justice, and oft has seen the wicked prize itself buys out the law. I love this image here. In the corrupted currents of this world. Currents here means sort of the way in which things are done. But it gives you a sense also of a poisoned river in the world. You also get those cool hard sea sounds of corrupted currents that really hit him hard. So in this world, offense's gilded hand may shove by justice. Here, offense is the offender, and the gilded hand is like a gold-plated hand. It's a gorgeous image, and it goes back to that same running image in the play of a beautiful exterior hiding a corrupt interior. So all the guiltiness is hidden by all the gildedness. That shiny outer layer of gold hides everything underneath, and it may shove by justice. In other words, it can push aside justice from ever coming down on him. And not only that, off to scene, often you see that the wicked prize itself, exactly the thing that you did the crime for, buys out the law. In other words, bribes the legal system from punishing the offender. So you can get away with it in this world. But he goes on, but tis not so above. There is no shuffling. There the action lies in his true nature. And we ourselves compelled, even to the teeth and forehead of our faults, to give in evidence. Yeah, in this world we can get away with it, but not above, not in heaven. There, above in heaven, is no shuffling. I love this word shuffling. It gives you a sense of like a magician doing card tricks, and it's actually pretty close. Shuffling is sort of like trickery or deception or even sleight of hand. So you can't get away with any of that in heaven. There in heaven, the action lies in his true nature. Lies meaning something like stands or is presented. So it's like all the gold is washed off, and that dirty hand just stands there exactly as it is. And we ourselves compelled, and I'm going to reorder a little bit here, to give in evidence even to the teeth and forehead of our faults. Give in evidence is like testify. In other words, self-incriminate. So we're compelled to testify against ourselves. There's no pleading the fifth in heaven. And how do we do that? Even to the teeth and forehead of our faults. Think about the teeth and the forehead. It's like the front of your face. So in other words, we have to come face to face with our sins in their true nature in heaven. So he's screwed. There's going to be no praying. He says, what then? What rests? Rests being like what remains after this conclusion. You hear these short choppy sentences breaking up the verse line? You're going to get a lot of this in the next few lines. It's a guy who's really disturbed and looking around for anything to do. So what should I do? Try what repentance can. I'll see what repentance can achieve. What can it not? You know, what can it not do? Repentance can do anything. But that's no good. He says, yet what can it when one cannot repent? Yeah, repentance can't do anything if you're actually not willing to repent. In other words, give back the things you did the crime for. He's not willing to do that. He's in a dark place now. He says, oh, wretched state. Oh, bosom black as death. He's in a terrible state. Oh, bosom. In other words, his heart is black as death, both because it's sinful and because he has no idea what to do. Oh, limed soul that struggling to be free art more engaged. Lime was like flypaper, only they used it to catch birds. It was this sticky substance you would spread on the ground or on a paper to catch birds in. So his soul is limed. His soul is caught. Struggling to be free art more engaged. So if you can imagine a bird on sticky paper, the more it struggles, the more it's caught, it's engaged. And that's how his soul is. So the more he tries to get free, the more he just confirms that he actually doesn't want to repent. And he's torn up. He says, help angels, make a say. A say is like an attempt or an effort. 
he's calling on the angels for help. So either he's asking them to make an attempt on him, or he's asking himself to make an attempt to contact heaven. And he forces himself to do it. He says, bow stubborn knees. In other words, bend, touch the ground as you would in prayer. And heart with strings of steel, be soft as sinews of the newborn babe. So he describes his heart as steel-stringed, like the fibers in it are made of steel because his heart is that cold and that resolute that he wants to keep all the stuff he has. But he's praying for it to be as soft as sinews, in other words, the tendons of a newborn babe. And why is a newborn baby's tendons so soft? Because they've never been used for walking or movement before. So he's asking God to soften his heart. And notice all the S's in that line? And they almost have two different effects. Strings of steel is very hard but then soft as sinews is very light. So you almost hear the transformation in the sounds. And he ends this section on an almost hopeful note. He says, all may be well. So by now he's on his knees and he starts to pray. And then you get an extraordinary moment. Who should enter but Hamlet? And this is where the play could end. The king's alone. His eyes are closed. He doesn't know that Hamlet's there. And Hamlet says, now might I do it, Pat. Now he is praying and now I'll do it. Pat here means conveniently, like it'd be really easy for me to do it now that he's praying, and now I will do it. So he goes from I might do it to I will do it. And so he goes to heaven, and so am I revenged. But of course, it isn't that easy. He stops himself and says, that would be scanned. Scanned means examined or scrutinized. This could almost be Hamlet's motto. Everything has to be examined, thought over. And notice he's also picked up that choppy language from Claudius. You get these half-line sentences. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Wait. So he lays out the logic for himself. He says, a villain kills my father. And for that, I, his sole son, do this same villain send to heaven? So a bad guy kills my father. I'm his only son. I send bad guy to heaven. And notice what Shakespeare does with the language here. He puts to heaven on a new line. So you almost have to pause before it. And then he clears out the rest of the line. So you have to pause after it. As though the thought of sending him to heaven is what stops him. And you have that long, empty part of the line for him just to work through all the consequences. Why, this is hire and salary, not revenge. Hire and salary is like a job someone would pay you to do, almost like you're a hitman. Revenge is much more personal than that. He says, he took my father grossly, full of bread, with all his crimes broad-blown, as flush as may. And how his audit stands, who knows save heaven? So he took my father, he killed my father grossly. Grossly can mean either Claudius's state when he killed his brother, so sort of indecently in the act of killing your brother, or King Hamlet's state at the time, that he was in some sort of state of excess when he died. Full of bread. I love this phrase. So maybe he had just eaten. He was in a state of sensual enjoyment, as opposed to like the fasting and repentance that you want to do before you die. With all his crimes broad blown. Broad blown, you get that double B sound. It means sort of in full bloom, as flush as may. Flush being like lusty, as May, and May, of course, being springtime, the time when everything is blooming and mating. So the reason that Hamlet's father ended up in purgatory in the first place is that he got killed without being able to have last rites and be purged. And how his audit stands, here the his is Claudius, his audit, in other words, his accounting of his sins with God. Who knows save heaven? Who knows except for God? But in our circumstance and course of thought, tis heavy with him. There is a ton of disagreement among scholars about what this phrase means circumstance in course circumstance could be his circumstance of thought which may be a way to say the details of what i've just been thinking through in the beginning of this speech and course of thought being hamlet's way of thinking just another way to say that so at least from what i think tis heavy with him in other words he seems really sad and tortured right now by his crime and he goes on and am i then revenged to take him in the purging of his soul when he is fit and seasoned for his passage so is it revenge, given how my father died, to take his murderer, to kill his murderer in the purging of his soul, you know, when he's repenting and praying to have his sins washed away, 
when he is fit and seasoned, seasoned being prepared for his passage, his voyage, but really his voyage upon dying to heaven. So I can't kill him when he's praying. He'll go right to heaven. And that's it. Hamlet's convinced himself. And he gets a single syllable on one verse line. He says, no. And it just hits like a ton of bricks because you know this was his shot. And he's thought himself out of it. In part probably because he doesn't actually want to kill. But he's rationalized it so that he doesn't have to now. He continues, up, sword, and know thou a more horrid hent. Up meaning go back into your sheath. So he's probably drawn his sword early, right at the beginning when he said, I'm going to do it now. But now he puts it back on that word up. Know thou a more horrid hent. So obviously by using that word hent, which was obscure even when it was used originally, he gets that cool double H sound of horrid hent. But what it means here is grasping. So the sword should know a more terrible occasion to be grasped. In other words, I'm going to pull it out at a worse time. And what is that worse time? When he is drunk asleep or in his rage, or in the incestuous pleasure of his bed, at gaming, swearing, or about some act that has no relish of salvation in it. So he's going to kill him at a time when he's sinning, when he's drunk asleep, when he's raging, or in the incestuous pleasure of his bed. He's going to kill his uncle when he's having sex with his mother? Oof. Incestuous, again, remember, because it was thought of as incest to sleep with your sister-in-law. At gaming, at gambling, swearing, or about some act, in other words, going about some action that has no relish of salvation in it. Relish being like a trace. There's nothing salvation-y about it. Nothing like this prayer thing he's caught him in. Then trip him, that his heels may kick at heaven, and that his soul may be as damned and black as hell whereto it goes. It's a cool way of saying kill him, trip him. And the image of Claudius being tripped so that his heels may kick at heaven. Almost as though he's trying to get to heaven with his heels, but he's already fallen over and his soul is going to hell. Because it's as damned and black as hell where it's going to. So he's made his decision. He says... My mother stays. In other words, my mother is waiting for me. This physic but prolongs thy sickly days. A physic is literally like a dose of medicine or a treatment. It's something that stalls an illness but doesn't cure it. And that's what this reprieve is for him. It only prolongs Claudius's sickly days. So it doesn't cure him. It just makes him live a little longer. He's trying to end the scene on the rhyming couplet, but we get another rhyming couplet from Claudius. He says, My words fly up, my thoughts remain below. That's one of those antitheses. His words are flying up to the sky, but his thoughts, his real soul, they stay down with him. This image is actually a lot like Hamlet's tongue and soul image from the end of the last scene. It's that hypocrisy he was talking about, the difference between what he says and what he actually feels inside. And he concludes, words without thoughts never to heaven go. So he has a rhyming couplet of his own. Notice again how the word order is shifted around so it's not never go to heaven. It ends on that strong go. So Claudius has tried to repent, but it has failed. So he leaves this scene as distraught or more distraught than he started. And look, a lot of performances of this scene, you'll have Hamlet kind of walk by as though he didn't know Claudius was going to be there. And oh, look, this guy's praying. Maybe I should kill him. I think it's actually pretty cool if he deliberately goes to see what Claudius is up to, that he spies on him, just like Claudius had been spying on him. You could almost make the case that he's hidden the whole time and hears everything going on between Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and the king. After all, in the next scene, he's going to tell his mother that he knows all about this England plot. So it'd be interesting to see that sometime. But now it's time for that showdown with mom, and we launch into Act 3, Scene 4, what's sometimes referred to as the closet scene. And it starts very similarly to the previous scene, with the queen talking to Polonius. And just like when he was talking to the king, he's in a hurry, because he knows Hamlet is on his way. He says to her, He will come straight, straight being short for straight away, at once. He'll be here any second. Look, you lay home to him. Remember, tax him home in the last scene? It's that same sense of home. So in this case, lay means sort of accuse him thoroughly, completely. Tell him his pranks have been too broad to bear with, and that your grace hath screened and stood between much heat and him. So pranks are another way of saying outrageous behaviors, not just like setting off cherry bombs in the toilets. 
They've been too broad to bear with, broad like excessive, over the top, to put up with. And notice, by the way, that all of the words in the first two lines of Polonius' speech have one syllable. It means that he's really explaining it to her carefully. So this is what you have to do. I'll be right here if you need me. And he goes on. Your grace, in other words, the queen, hath screened and stood between much heat and him. Heat being like anger or punishment. You can almost imagine her as the screen in front of a fire. So she's blocked some of the heat that was coming down on Hamlet. And then maybe he hears Hamlet coming. He says, I'll silence me even here. You know, I'll stay right here, but I'll be really quiet. Pray you be round with him. We've heard that word before, round meaning blunt or sort of straightforward with him. And pray you just being, I ask you. And then finally we hear Hamlet calling off stage, Mother! 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 And she hears him too. And she says to Polonius quickly, I'll warrant you, fear me not. So she may have heard his condescending tone. And she says, I'll warrant you, I assure you that I'm going to be round with him. Fear me not, don't worry about me. Don't doubt that I can handle this. Withdraw, I hear him coming. Withdraw being, get behind that screen, he's coming. Hide yourself. And just as Polonius hides himself, Hamlet comes bursting in. And not only is he keyed up because of what happened during the play, he's also really keyed up because of what just happened with Claudius. He's been waiting for this showdown for a long time to give her a piece of his mind. He comes right in with, now mother, what's the matter? Not just in our modern sense of what's wrong, but what is this issue you want to talk about? And Gertrude has been thinking, she goes right at him. She says, Hamlet, thou hast thy father much offended. And this is pretty bold on her part, especially calling Claudius his father. If you want to drive a stepkid crazy, just call their stepfather their father. And Hamlet doesn't talk to her respectfully. He breaks out that wit again, that punning. He says right back to her, Mother, you have my father much offended. He turns her phrase exactly around on her. So you're the one who offended my real father. And notice how she uses thou and he uses you, almost as though he's trying to raise the tone. He's pretending to be nice to her. But this is his mom. She knows him. She says, come, come, you answer with an idle tongue. Come, come is sort of their version of come on. You answer with an idle tongue. Remember, idle has a lot of different meanings. One of them is crazy. Another one is sort of foolish or ridiculous. Like, don't talk back to me that way. And again, Hamlet breaks out that fast wit and he transforms what she says again. He says, go, go, you question with a wicked tongue. So come, come turns into go, go, like get out of here. And the opposite of answer is question. And her idol becomes his wicked. So he's tearing her to pieces with wit. And she's really taken aback. She says, why, how now, Hamlet? What's going on? Hamlet says, what's the matter now? Remember, he started by asking, what's the matter? It's like, so what are we talking about now? Or in this case, what's wrong now? And she isn't used to being spoken to that way. And she finally puts her foot down. She says, have you forgotten me? In other words, have you forgotten who I am? I'm your mother. And Hamlet just withers her. He says, no, by the rude, not so. Rude is another word for the cross that Christ was crucified on. So it's a really strong oath. No, I haven't forgotten who you are. You are the queen, your husband's brother's wife. This is really low. Just reminding her that she married her husband's brother. And on top of that, he says, and would it were not so, you are my mother. Would it were not so means I wish it wasn't so. He literally says right to her face, I wish you weren't my mother. So you're the queen and my mother, but I wish you weren't. And that sets her off. He can't talk to her like that. She says, Nathan, I'll set those to you that can speak. Like, okay, I'll set those to you. I'll send people to you that can speak, that can speak to you more forcefully than I can. So maybe I'll send you the king. And maybe she stomps off to go find those people. But Hamlet doesn't let her go. He says, come, come and sit you down. In a lot of productions, he actually grabs her and sits her down in a chair. He says, you shall not budge. You go not till I set you up a glass where you may see the inmost part of you. You shall not budge. You will not move. You go not. You're not going to go till I set you up a glass. A glass is a mirror, 
But what kind of mirror? A mirror where you may see the inmost part of you. There aren't any mirrors like that. Most mirrors, you can only see the outer surface. Here, he's going to set her up a mirror where she can see what's going on in her soul. Not a literal mirror, of course. So there's that surface inside image again. And notice the rhythm of his lines. It's all monosyllables again. Come, come, and sit you down. You shall not budge you. Go not till I set you up a glass. Those strong single syllables. Whenever Shakespeare wants to be really blunt and to the point, he carves his language way down. And this is really the first time he's put hands on her like that. And Gertrude is freaked out. She says, what wilt thou do? Thou wilt not murder me. What are you going to do? You're not going to murder me, are you? And all she can think to do is call out for help because she knows that Polonius is in the room. Help, help, ho! Ho being just a version of like, hey there. It's a sound that calls out for someone's attention. And Polonius isn't armed. All he can do is call out on her behalf. He says, what ho? Help, help, help! So he's calling out for help too. And Hamilton's in an incredibly worked up state and he hears someone behind the arras spying on him. And all he can think, if he even has time to think, is it's the king. Now's my chance. He's doing something evil. And he says, how now, a rat? Dead for a ducat. Dead. And he almost uses rat in our modern sense of it, almost like a dirty spy. Dead for a ducat. In other words, I'll bet a ducat, which is a gold coin that's worth less than a pound. So I'll bet that he's about to be dead. But it's a very impulsive decision on his part. And this is a huge moment. It's really the turning moment of the play. Because he whips out his sword and stabs the guy through the iris. Hamlet has just become that thing he never wanted to be. He's a murderer. He's just given up his soul because he was passion's slave. He didn't think about it. He just heard someone spying on him and he killed them in cold blood. And part of the problem now is that people know this is coming. It's a famous moment. Most people know coming into Hamlet that this is how Polonius is going to die. If you've seen it before, you definitely know it. But it's a stunning moment in the play. From now on, nothing good is going to happen. It's as though Shakespeare's saying to us, you want revenge? This is what happens when you revenge. Bystanders start getting taken out. And this is the first of many bystanders that are going to be taken down in the course of this revenge. It turns very messy. So like you think revenge is easy, you just kill a guy? Well, here's what revenge is really like. So there's this incredible moment of silence where Hamlet kills a man. Gertrude's horrified. He's probably paralyzed. At this moment, he might think, I finally did it. I killed Claudius. He doesn't know how to feel. And anyway, the first time you kill someone is a huge step to take. It is very much crossing a line that you can't come back from. So everyone's standing there. And from behind the arras, you hear, oh, I'm slain, which is kind of a stupid line. We know he's slain. I would urge you to cut this line down to a series of groans. It often gets a laugh in production. And Gertrude is horrified. She says, oh me, what hast thou done? What did you do? And Hamlet says, nay, I know not. Is it the king? He literally has no idea what he's done yet. And Gertrude is losing it. She says, oh, what a rash and bloody deed is this. Rash, like impulsive. And Hamlet takes his cue from her bloody deed. And he gets furious that she would accuse him. He says, a bloody deed. Almost as bad, good mother, as kill a king and marry with his brother. And now the gloves are totally off. He's finally accused her of that thing that he came here to say to her. Like, you're calling that a bloody deed? I'll tell you about a bloody deed. It was almost as bad, and you get that ironic good mother after the bad, because he doesn't actually think she's a good mother. It's almost as bad as killing a king and marrying his brother. Hold the phone! Gertrude killed his father? That's a very different accusation. This is all the built-up rage toward his mother. He thinks she was in on it in some way, or maybe she did it with her own hands. And Gertrude is understandably shocked by this. She says, as kill a king? And Hamlet snaps back, I lady, t'was my word. Yeah, you heard what I said. And then there's a horrifying moment where he moves that curtain aside and he sees who he's killed. He got it wrong. And all he can say is, Thou wretched, rash, intruding fool. Farewell. Wretched can mean awful, but it can also just mean unfortunate, like he was unlucky. And rash, that's the word that his mother just used to describe what he did. So he's turning that back on Polonius. He says goodbye to him. And what does he say? I took thee for thy better. In other words, I mistook you for someone more important than you, which is to say Claudius. 
which is another thing to admit to his mother, that he was intending to kill her husband, but he actually killed the wrong guy. He says to Polonius's body, take thy fortune. Fortune here being a way of saying fate. In other words, here's your fate. Thou finds to be too busy is some danger. So it's almost as though he's blaming Polonius for his own death. So you just found out that to be too busy, almost like a busybody, too nosy and interfering and plotting constantly, is some danger. It's something of a danger. So it turns out all your meddling led you to this. Way to blame the victim, guy. Hamlet must be pretty horrified now, too, because he knows for sure now he's going to hell. He killed the wrong guy. And then he wheels around on his mother and he says to her, Leave ringing of your hands! You've probably seen hand ringing. Often when people are upset, they'll sort of squeeze their hands rhythmically like a tick. So she's clearly freaking out where she is. And then he goes on, Peace! Sit you down and let me wring your heart! For so I shall, if it be made of penetrable stuff, if damned custom have not brazed it so that it is proof and bulwark against sense. Peace being the equivalent of quiet or shut up. So maybe she's making crying noises. So stop squeezing your hands. I'm going to squeeze out your heart. In other words, I'm going to appeal directly to your heart. For so I shall, that's what I'll do if it be made of penetrable stuff. If it's even possible to touch your heart, if it's something that can be squeezed, if damned custom have not brazed it so. Custom is like habit, and brazed is brass-plated. So if the habit of sinning hasn't made it so armed that nothing can get through to it, that it is proof and bulwark, which means armored and fortified, these military terms, against sense. Sense here isn't like good sense, it's like feeling. So if your heart isn't so armored against all feeling, then I'll appeal to it. And all this talk of sinning and killing, and she says to him, What have I done that thou darest wag thy tongue in noise so rude against me? That dares is a really strong verb. Like, how dare you? And she doesn't say, yell at me. She says, wag thy tongue. Which is another way of saying scold or accuse. But here it's almost childish and petty. And not in speech, in noise. So rude against me. So it's obviously rude in our sense, but it can also mean rough. So she really goes after him. And he strikes right back. In fact, he finishes her verse line in an interrupting kind of way. He says, such an act that blurs the grace and blush of modesty, calls virtue hypocrite, takes off the rose from the fair forehead of an innocent love, and sets a blister there, makes marriage vows as false as dicer's oaths. He essentially makes a list of all the ways in which her sin is terrible. What have you done? Such an act that blurs the grace and blush of modesty. Blurs here is more like blemishes or stains. The grace and blush, blush meaning like innocence, of modesty. Modesty being the sort of chaste way women should behave. What else does this act do? It calls virtue hypocrite. Remember we had the word hypocrite two scenes ago? It's that idea of an actor who pretends to be one thing and really is another. So now he's saying that act makes virtue a hypocrite takes off the rose from the fair forehead of an innocent love. The rose being the mark of beauty and innocence. So the act rips that off the fair forehead, the face, in other words, of an innocent love, of a pure love, and sets a blister there. So it swaps out the rose for a disgusting blister on the face. You'll sometimes hear that prostitutes were branded on their foreheads when they were caught. There's no actual evidence that this ever happened. It may just sort of refer to a kind of moral ugliness, that when you cheat on someone, you turn that love from beautiful and innocent to ugly. So what else does this act do? It makes marriage vows as false as dicer's oaths. Dicer's oaths are gambler's promises. And obviously you can't trust gamblers to keep their oaths. So the vows of marriage that she swore to her first husband now seem as false as a gambler's promises. And he escalates it even more. Oh, such a deed as from the body of contraction plucks the very soul, and sweet religion makes a rhapsody of words. So contraction is another word for the marriage contract. So if you imagine that as a body, this act tears out its soul. So it's soulless and not valid anymore. And what else does the act do? It makes sweet religion into a rhapsody of words. Rhapsody is usually musical, but here it means like a meaningless jumble. So it's as though you've taken a sweet, innocent prayer and moved the words all around so it doesn't mean anything anymore. 
He goes on, Heaven's face doth glow, yea, this solidity and compound mass, with tristful visage, as against the doom, is thought-sick at the act. Heaven's face, in other words, the sky, doth glow. It becomes red with anger or shame. So it's as though heaven is looking down and turns red because it's so angry at what this act was. And not only that, this solidity and compound mass, solidity being another word for solid ground, and compound mass being the sort of combined minerals that make up the earth and the soil. So the solidity and compound mass is another way of saying just the earth with tristful visage. That's a beautiful sounding phrase. You hear all those s sounds. It means like a sad or sorrowful face. Remember, just like heaven had a face in the last line? As against the doom, just like the moment before doomsday when weather was supposed to freak out, you know, right before the end of days, it looks just like that. So the earth is thought sick at the act, which you could sort of translate into sick at the thought of the act, but thought sick is a much cooler way to say it. So it's this incredible buildup of images and accusations. He may not even be done yet because, look, she finishes his verse line. Is thought sick at the act, and she jumps on his cue of act and says, I mean, what act that roars so loud and thunders in the index? So what is this act you're accusing me of that roars and thunders? These are great natural sounds, as though it's screaming, just in the index. An index, whereas today it's the part at the end of the book, originally it was the part at the beginning of the book. It was originally the table of contents to a longer book. So what she means here is this introduction that you just gave me. You haven't even told me what the act is yet, but it's so loud and thundering, it must be horrible. So finally Hamlet is going to lay out his case. He says, look here upon this picture and on this the counterfeit presentment of two brothers. So he's calling for props, basically. That's what those thises are. So look on this picture here, and look on this picture. In most productions, he literally picks up a picture of his uncle and his father. Sometimes she has a picture of his uncle around her neck, and he has a picture of his father around his neck, and he shows both of them to her. It's possible that she actually has pictures of both of them on the table. I don't know. It's up to the production. So these two pictures are the counterfeit presentment of two brothers. Presentment is just like presentation or likeness of two brothers. But how is it counterfeit? Well, one way is that it's artificial since it's just pictures. It's not really the guys. But it might also be artificial because they're not really brothers anymore. One of them betrayed the other one. And now he's really going to lay out for her what he's so upset about. He says, See what a grace was seated on this brow. Hyperion's curls, the front of Jove himself, an eye like Mars to threaten and command, a station like the herald Mercury new-lighted on a heaven-kissing hill, a combination and a form indeed where every god did seem to set his seal to give the world assurance of a man. It's a long list, and it's all based on old Greek and Roman mythology. So first he takes the picture of his father. So see what a grace was seated on this brow. Brow is sort of another way to say face. So what did he have? He had Hyperion's curls. Who's Hyperion? In Greek mythology, he was one of the titans. He was the father of the sun and moon gods. So it was like king of the king of the king of the gods. So he had the hair of this god, the front of Jove himself. Front is a word for face or even just forehead of Jove. Jove being another name for Zeus, the king of the gods. And he goes into more detail. An eye like Mars. Mars being the god of war. To threaten and command. So he had warlike eyes. A station like the herald Mercury. Station being like a way he stood, a bearing, like the herald Mercury. Mercury was the messenger of the gods. New lighted on a heaven-kissing hill. Lighted is short for alighted, like landed. New meaning newly, like he just landed, on a heaven-kissing hill. On a hill that's almost touching heaven, but heaven-kissing is a beautiful image. He's really sweetening this up to make his father sound even better. So all those gods, and he concludes, a combination and a form indeed where every god did seem to set his seal. So it's a combination of features, a form, a general appearance, where every god did seem to set his seal, the seal being sort of his seal of approval, to give the world assurance of a man, to let the world know what a real man was. And he sums up, this was your husband. 
I'm like, look what you used to have. And then he turns it on her. And look how the line breaks right in the middle. This was your husband. And then look you now what follows. Follows being like what comes after him. Here is your husband, like a mildewed ear blasting his wholesome brother. So this was your husband. Now here is your husband. He shows her the picture of Claudius, like a mildewed ear. This being like an ear of grain or corn in the field. But it's gotten mildewed. It's gotten all moldy. Blasting, blasting meaning like rotting or blighting his wholesome brother. Wholesome meaning healthy and brother meaning the ear next to it. But also that echo of Claudius and old King Hamlet being brothers. So it's the image of a healthy ear of corn and the diseased one almost starts to infect the other one. And this is what really bothers him. He says, have you eyes? Could you on this fair mountain leave to feed and batten on this moor? Huh? Have you eyes? So it starts and ends with a real question for her. Like, do you have eyes? Can you see? Could you on this fair mountain, this beautiful mountain, leave to feed, stop grazing and batten on this moor? Batten is another word for graze or feed. And a moor is like an area of sort of flat, boggy land. They have a lot of it in Scotland and Ireland. It's this like gross shrubbery. So he's comparing this beautiful mountain that was Old Hamlet to this gross swamp that is Claudius. Like if you had eyes, you would know the difference between those two things. And he just doesn't understand how his mother could swap out his father for his uncle. He goes right after her. He says, you cannot call it love. For at your age, the heyday in the blood is tame. It's humble and waits upon the judgment. And what judgment would step from this to this? So what's the explanation? The explanation can't be love. And this is kind of gross. At your age, for someone as old as you, the heyday in the blood is tame. Heyday was something you would sometimes say when you were surprised or happy. It was like an expression. But here it means youthful excitement in the blood. The blood was sort of the seat of passion, including sexual passion. And it's humble. It's low. So you can't be in love because unlike a young person, you don't get excited about love and sex anymore. So it's humble. It waits upon the judgment. Waits upon like a servant waits on you. So these passionate feelings serve your judgment, serve your reason. So at your age, you should really know better. You shouldn't just get caught up in sex and love like young people do. And he asks her what judgment, like what kind of reason would move from this great person to this gross person? Sense sure you have, else could you not have motion. But sure, that sense is apoplexed. For madness would not err, nor sense to ecstasy was ne'er so thralled, but it reserved some quantity of choice to serve in such a difference. So sure here means surely. Surely you have sense. And it's not like good sense. It's like your five senses. Else could you not have motion. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to move. You'd always be bumping into things. And then he turns around the beginning of that sentence. It starts with sense, sure. And he goes on with sure that sense. Surely those senses, they're apoplexed. Apoplexed means paralyzed. Something's desperately wrong with them. For madness would not err. In other words, even a crazy person couldn't be that wrong or that off track. Nor sense to ecstasy was ne'er so thralled. And the senses were ne'er so thralled, thralled being enslaved to ecstasy, to madness or fantasy. But it reserved some quantity of choice to serve in such a difference. It reserved, it retained some quantity, some small, tiny amount of choice to serve in such a difference. In other words, to be useful in distinguishing between such different people as these two were. Like not even a crazy person wouldn't be able to tell the difference between these guys. He asks, what devil was that thus hath cousined you at Hoodman Blind? Cousined means like tricked or fooled. And Hoodman Blind is a game sort of like Blind Man's Buff, which you may have played, where one of the players is blindfolded and he has to find the other players without the help of sight. So if her senses aren't working, maybe it's because the devil tricked her with this game, took away her sight. Eyes without feeling, feeling without sight, ears without hands or eyes, smelling sands all, or but a sickly part of one true sense could not so mope. So even if you could see, but you couldn't touch, or you could touch, but you couldn't see, or you could hear, but you couldn't touch or see, 
or even if you could just smell and not do anything else, sans all meaning without any of the others, or but a sickly part, or even just one weak part of one true sense, like even if you had one sense and it was like really weak, could not so mope. You hear those awful long O sounds. It's not moping in our sense of like being really sad. It's like wandering aimlessly around. So even if you could just barely smell these guys, you'd know the difference between them. Kind of a dig on how Claudius smells, but that's okay. He just doesn't get why she made this decision. And he's just disgusted. He says, oh, shame. Where is thy blush? Like, shame on you. Why aren't you ashamed of this? Why aren't you blushing? Rebellious hell. If thou canst mutant in a matron's bones to flaming youth, let virtue be as wax and melt in her own fire. So I think he turns pretty sarcastic here. Hell, in this case, I think what he's talking about is that burning sexual desire. So if sexual desire can mutant, can rebel in a matron's bones, like in even an older woman, then to flaming youth, then to someone who's still young and passionate, let virtue, let chastity or sexual morality be as wax and melt in her own fire. So if even old people get carried away by sex, then let young people go crazy. Let's just melt their virtue away with that heat. Proclaim no shame when the compulsive ardor gives the charge, since frost itself as actively doth burn, and reason panders will. Yeah, don't say there's anything to be ashamed of when the compulsive ardor, when this kind of like driving young lust gives the charge. It's a war image. It means signals the attack, you know, really goes for it. And why shouldn't young people be ashamed of this? Because frost itself, in other words, old people or old age, as actively doth burn. They feel that passion just as actively as these young people do. And reason panders will. Panders means pimps out for. So it's as though this self-deluding logic makes their desire possible. Like, you should know better, mom. And after that long broadside, she just says, oh, Hamlet, speak no more. And then we hear something surprising from her. She's really stood up to him so far. And then she says, thou turnst mine eyes into my very soul. And there I see such black and grained spots as will not leave their tinct. So he's apparently set up that mirror to her inmost parts he was talking about because she says that he turns her eyes into her soul where she can see such black and grained spots, grained meaning ingrained or sort of impossible to remove from wood as will not leave their tinct. Leave their tinct meaning give up their color. So it's like a stain that's gotten into the grain of the wood and no matter how much you clean it, it won't get out. That's what she sees in her soul. So she's starting to feel guilty, whether rightly or wrongly, of these things that Hamlet is accusing her of. But he won't let that go. He jumps right on her verse line. He says, Nay, but to live in the rank sweat of an inseamed bed, stewed in corruption, honeying and making love over the nasty sty. He doesn't even want to hear from her. And he starts getting even more personal. He says, you live in the rank sweat. There's that word rank again that Claudius used. Rank meaning just disgusting smelling or filthy or offensive. And semen is a wonderful word. It means soaked with grease and sweat. She's in this greasy bed, stewed in corruption. Stewed like steeped or marinated. It's kind of a cooking term. And corruption is like rotting or decay. That does not sound like a good bed. Maybe get a new bed. Honeying is like saying honey to someone. It's using love talk or like cooing at them and making love over the nasty sty. He calls her bed a sty like pigs would use. But you get that cool double use of the letters S-T-Y, S-T-Y. Hamlet definitely doesn't want to have sex with his mother, but he spends a lot of time thinking about her having sex with his uncle. And he will not let up, so finally she cuts him off again. She says, oh, speak to me no more. These words like daggers enter in mine ears. Remember how he said in that last scene that he was going to speak daggers to her? Well, it's working. His words are like daggers in her ears. She doesn't want to hear this. No more, sweet Hamlet. It's interesting to see her go back to the word sweet. He's not very sweet right now, but she's begging him to stop. She doesn't want to think about this stuff. But he won't let up. He's going hammer and tongs at her. Now he's talking about Claudius, finally. He says, a murderer and a villain, a slave that is not 20th part the tithe of your precedent, Lord. 
a vice of kings, a cutpurse of the empire and the rule, that from a shelf the precious diadem stole and put it in his pocket. So it's all these terrible names for Claudius. So he's a murderer, yeah, and a villain. Notice that's the first time he's called Claudius a murderer to her face. A slave. So not just not a king, the lowliest thing you can be, a slave. That is not 20th part the tithe, not 120th of the tithe, of one-tenth of your precedent lord, of your previous husband. So he's not even slightly his equal. A vice of kings. Remember those morality plays we were talking about during the play within a play? The morality plays had a character called a vice, who was this sort of character of pure evil and seduction. He would come on stage and convince people to do evil things. So that's the kind of king Claudius is. A cut purse of the empire and the rule. A cut purse is a pickpocket. It's literally someone who would walk up to your purse, to your wallet, and cut out the bottom and take what was inside it. So in this case, what he's stolen is the empire and the rule. Rule being another name for the kingdom or the state. Because he stole that from his brother. So he's a cut purse that from a shelf the precious diadem stole. The diadem is another word for the crown. So it's almost like a guy who broke into a house in the middle of the night, took the crown off a shelf, put it in his pocket, and left with it. So he's calling him a common thief. And Hamlet's actually worked himself up at this point to where you think he might do violence again. It's what he was worried about before. And Gertrude begs him, no more! But he starts up again. He says, a king of shreds and patches! It's a cool image. Shreds and patches is like a patchwork. It's like a king who's put together from scraps of better kings than him. A patchwork king. And then you get what they call in horror movies, a jump scare. You know, like when something perfectly innocent and pleasant is going on in the foreground, and then suddenly the camera focuses on the background and there's a monster there. Well, in this case, we suddenly become aware that the ghost of old King Hamlet is standing in the doorway. It's a crazy moment because at this point, we haven't seen this character for something like an hour and a half of stage time. We're pretty sure he's gone. But remember Hamlet said, this is the witching hour when all the creepy crawlies come out of the graves? And wouldn't you know it, the ghost is there. And Hamlet is going full after her and this stops him on a dime. He says, save me and hover over me with your wings, you heavenly guards. This is a lot like what he said when he first saw the ghost, angels and ministers of grace defend us. So the heavenly guards in this case are the angels again. So he's asking them to hover over him with their wings to protect him. And then he turns to the ghost and says, What would your gracious figure? What here meaning wants? What do you want? You're gracious, like your grace. And then we learn a really important piece of information because Gertrude says, Alas, he's mad. And why does she say that? Because she can't see this ghost. And what's cool about this moment and what some productions will play is that we don't really know if the ghost is there or not. Up until this point, everyone's been able to see the ghost. And this is the first time that one person has and one person hasn't. But Hamlet keeps talking to the ghost. He says, do you not come your tardy son to chide that lapsed in time and passion lets go by the important acting of your dread command? Oh, say, like, haven't you come to chide to scold your tardy son? And why tardy? Because he delayed in carrying out this command to revenge that lapsed in time and passion. Lapsed meaning running out of, as though he's let all this time run out and also passion. He's let his emotion run out, his emotion for his father. He lets go by the important acting of your dread command. Important isn't just important in our sense. It's like pressing or urgent. And dread being the old sense of awful, like inspiring dread. It's also a cool way to describe this command because Hamlet has dreaded carrying this out the whole play. So he's asking him if that's why he's there. And he says, oh, say. And finally the ghost speaks. He says, do not forget. And you'll notice the ghost's last words the last time he spoke to Hamlet were, remember me. So it's an echo there. He goes on, this visitation is but to wet thy almost blunted purpose. 
Wet means to sharpen. And what you sharpen is usually a blade that has become blunt. And in this case, the blade is his purpose, the job he has to do, his intentions. They've become blunted. They've become dull. So I'm visiting to sharpen that blade. So it just came to remind you of what you're here to do. And it's interesting that he stops him right before he may be taking some action against his mother, which was something the ghost specifically asked him not to do. And at this moment, the ghost does this amazing thing, which is he looks at Gertrude and he says, but look, amazement on thy mother sits. Amazement isn't just surprise. At this time, it's usually something more like confusion or bewilderment. Again, that sense of being stuck in a maze. So confusion sits on her. Oh, step between her and her fighting soul. It's a cool image. It's as though she's having a fight with her soul and the ghost is calling on Hamlet to break it up. He says, conceit in weakest bodies, strongest works. Conceit isn't like someone who's conceited. It's what she imagines. And this is an antithesis too. Imagination works strongest in weakest bodies. So maybe weak because she's older and female. Thanks for nothing, sexist turn of the 17th century. So the ghost has delivered his remember me message. But now he ends with, speak to her, Hamlet. And Hamlet, who's gotten furious at her earlier in this scene, just turns to her and says, how is it with you, lady? Which can almost be a laugh line sometimes because he's like, so how you doing? And she's pretty thrown by this. She says, Alas, how is it with you that you do bend your eye on vacancy and with the incorporeal air do hold discourse? Like, how am I doing? How are you doing? You're the one who bend, who focuses your eye on vacancy. Vacancy just being an empty space. And with the incorporeal air, incorporeal meaning without substance, literally not having a body, do hold discourse, to have a conversation. Because from her perspective, it looks like Hamlet is just talking to the air. She goes on to describe him in a way that's probably helpful for the actor playing Hamlet. She says, forth at your eyes, your spirits wildly peep. There was this thought in the medicine of the time that spirits were like these vapors that came out of your blood and made your body move. So maybe because his eyes are so wide, it's as though those vapors are all looking out of his eyes. And notice also the verse in this line. It starts with this hard-stressed word, forth, as though his eyes are slamming open. And what else is in his appearance? And as the sleeping soldiers in the alarm, your bedded hairs, like life in excrements, start up and stand on end. It's a very strange image. As the sleeping soldiers in the alarm. In the alarm is that moment when the alarm is sounded. Your bedded hairs. So she's comparing his hair to soldiers asleep in bed when the alarm goes off and they have to jump up. Like life in excrements. Now excrements did not mean then what it means now. It meant anything that grew out of the body. So in this case, it's referring to hairs. So like life in excrements means as if hairs had a life of their own. And what do the hairs do? They start up, they jump up and stand on end. By the way, there was a famous British actor in the 18th century named David Garrick, who got famous in part for this ghost scene, because whenever the ghost would appear, he had this wig that was specially designed so the hairs would stand on end. It's a super goofy special effect, but apparently it was very effective. Anyway, she continues. O gentle sun, upon the heat and flame of thy distemper, sprinkle cool patience. O gentle, in other words, noble sun. And there's that word distemper again, which means madness or strange behavior. Remember, it's that imbalance of the humors. So she's comparing his madness to a fire, to heat and flame. And she wants to sprinkle on that flame cool patience, as though patience and calmness is cool water that puts out that fire. And she asks him, whereon do you look? And Hamlet can't believe this. He says, on him, on him. Look you how pale he glares. And you can hear his vehemence in that line, that hard stressed look in the middle of it, where there would normally be an unstressed syllable. It really shoots forward that second half of the line. And glares can mean stares in our modern sense, but it can also mean glows. He goes on, his form and cause conjoined, preaching to stones would make them capable. So his form, in other words, his physical appearance, this pale glow, and his cause, the cause of revenge, conjoined, if they were combined together, preaching to stones, if he were to talk to stones, would make them capable. In other words, would make them responsive. They would talk back to him. That's how arresting his appearance and cause are. And he says to the ghost, Do not look upon me, lest with this piteous action you convert my stern effects. 
It's a strange idea. Stop looking at me. Lest, in case, with this piteous action, with the act of looking at me, piteous meaning inspiring pity, you convert my stern effects. Effects are intentions. So this piteous look might change my intentions, which have to be hard and stern, both to the queen and to Claudius. He says, then what I have to do will want true color, tears perchance for blood. Then this thing I have to do will want, in other words, will lack true color. And color means like substance or quality. So it might make him lose his nerve. And tears perchance for blood. Perchance means perhaps or maybe. And for here means in exchange for or instead of. So what he needs to do in this job is shed Claudius's blood. But he's worried that if the ghost looks at him like that, he's going to shed tears instead. And Gertrude is still incredibly disturbed by this. She says, to whom do you speak this? And Hamlet says, do you see nothing there? Gertrude says back, nothing at all. Yet all that is, I see. That all that is, I see, is pretty cryptic. But she might almost be saying, now I see you really are crazy. And Hamlet asks, no, did you nothing here? And Gertrude says, no, nothing but ourselves. You see those four nothings in a row? They're each cueing each other back and forth. So you saw nothing? No, I saw nothing. And you heard nothing? No, I heard nothing. So it's that cool echoing of nothing through the lines. And this amazes Hamlet. He says, why, look you there. Look how it steals away. Steals being sort of like sneaks away. And it's that same use of look as in that earlier line. It's that hard, stressed look in the middle of the line. My father in his habit as he lived. Habit is like his clothes. So he's dressed exactly the same as he was when he was alive. Look where he goes even now, out at the portal. A portal is just a word for the doorway. So right now he's going out of the door. Don't ask me why ghosts need to use doors, but the ghost is gone and they're left alone again. Gertrude says, this is the very coinage of your brain. Coinage here means invention, but the images of the brain almost like a mint that's spitting out coins. And in this case, one of those coins is the ghost because it's not real, according to her. It's something that his brain just spit out. This bodiless creation ecstasy is very cunning in. So it's a cool phrase, bodiless creation. It means producing objects that aren't really solid or there. And ecstasy here is a word for madness. And then cunning means like skillful or talented. So if you untangle that line, it is ecstasy is very cunning in this bodiless creation. Or madness is very skillful at producing these things that aren't really there. But Hamlet wants to end this. He says, ecstasy. And notice how short that verse line is with that one word there. My pulse, as yours, doth temperately keep time and makes as healthful music. So my pulse, just like yours, doth temperately, in other words, moderately, regularly. His pulse isn't racing like a crazy person's would be. And keep time is a musical term, but it means to beat regularly, almost like a really regular metronome. And notice that that music image continues into the next line. It makes as healthful music. So I'm just as sane as you are. It is not madness that I have uttered. Uttered just meaning spoken. Bring me to the test, and I the matter will reword which madness would gamble from saying, if you think I'm crazy, just test me. I, the matter, will reword. In other words, I'll repeat exactly what I have said to you before. Which madness, which a crazy person would gamble from. Gamble is something that sheep and goats do. It's a weird little jump. But a crazy person would flee from that. They'd bound away from it. Whereas a sane person like myself could do that easily. Mother, for love of grace, lay not that flattering unction to your soul that not your trespass, but my madness speaks. In some ways, it would be easier for her if he was crazy, because that would explain everything. But he won't let her get away with that. He says, for love of grace, grace being God's favor, lay not that flattering unction to your soul. A flattering unction is a soothing ointment, like you'd use on a burn. So don't put that soothing ointment on your soul, that not your trespass. In other words, that it isn't your crime, it isn't your sin, but it's just my madness that's talking. So if it was easy enough to just explain it as him being crazy, that would be like a soothing ointment. And she could say, oh, it wasn't really my fault. It was just his craziness. What will it do if she applies that unction? It will but skin and film the ulcerous place, whilst rank corruption, mining all within, infects unseen. This is such a cool image and really one of the best examples of that beautiful exterior with a corrupt interior thing that's going on all throughout the play. 
it will but skin and film the ulcerous place. So if you've ever had like a boil or an abscess, what happens is that you have a wound and then it skins over at the top. It heals right at the skin level. So the ulcerous place, ulcerous being like a sore or a wound, that just gets skinned and filmed over. So there's this very thin skin over this ulcerous place. But then rank corruption. There's that word rank again. It means festering decay. Mining all within, mining like undermining, like it digs into the wound, infects unseen. So what happens in a boil or an abscess is that it skins over, but then the wound is still festering underneath because it was infected. And the only way to cure it is you need to lance it. You need to let out all that gross stuff underneath it. So it looks fine on the outside, but it's decaying on the inside. And that's how he describes her sin, that she can cover it over if she wants, but there's still decay on the inside. And finally, he gives her advice. He says, confess yourself to heaven. Repent what's past, avoid what is to come, and do not spread the compost on the weeds to make them rancor. So make your confession to God, repent what's past, in other words, repent the sin you've already done, avoid what is to come, stop doing it in the future, and do not spread the compost on the weeds to make them rancor. Here's that word rank again. Here it means something like growing excessively. So it's this idea that you can cover up the weeds with compost so you can't see the weeds anymore. But all that's going to do is make them grow even more because compost has all the nutrients in it. And pretty soon they're going to grow up through that compost. So don't try to pretend like this never happened. He says, forgive me this my virtue, for in the fatness of these percy times, virtue itself of vice must pardon beg. Yea, curb and woo for leave to do him good. So his virtue in this case is speaking so boldly and honestly to her. He's not being very virtuous and speaking nicely to her, but whatever. For in the fatness of these Percy times, it's beautiful language, fatness being like overfed and luxuriant and lazy. And Percy comes from the word purse. So if you imagine a purse that is full to bursting, it's a way to say like flabby and swollen. So it's another criticism of the times he's living in as being kind of fat and lazy. So in these terrible times, virtue itself of vice must pardon beg. You have to reorder the words a little bit. Virtue itself must beg pardon from vice. So everything is so upside down, the goodness has to ask evil for its pardon. And not only that, curb and woo, which means bow and beg, for leave, for permission to do him good. That's how backwards everything is. So it's another criticism of this era he's living in under Claudius. And you can see too how even as he calms down, his language calms down too. The verse becomes a little more regular here. And Gertrude is heartbroken. She says literally, O Hamlet, thou hast cleft my heart in twain. Cleft in twain means chopped in two. And Hamlet's going to go back to that wit response that we had at the beginning of the scene, but here it's going to be much nicer and more gentle. He says, Oh, throw away the worser part of it and live the purer with the other half. So if I chopped your heart in two, well, throw away the bad half of it and live the purer. In other words, live more purely with the good half. So I'm sorry I broke your heart, but maybe it will lead you to living a better life. Even though we're still not entirely convinced she did anything wrong. He says to her, good night, but go not to my uncle's bed. So he's about to leave, but he still has to give her more advice. Don't go to my uncle's bed. He's still grossed out by the idea of them having sex. The sin he's talking about really is this incest sin. And if she can stop doing that, maybe she'll live a purer life. He says, assume a virtue if you have it not. Assume means to put on, almost like you'd put on a shirt. So even if you don't really have a virtue, you can at least put it on for a little while. Just try it out by not going to his bed. That monster, custom, who all sense doth eat of habits evil, is angel yet in this, that to the use of actions fair and good, he likewise gives a frock or livery that aptly is put on. So he's talking about custom, in other words, habit, as a monster that eats all sense, in other words, our ability to recognize evil habits. Because the more we're used to doing something, the less conscious we are that it's wrong. So it's a monster in that way, but it's an angel yet in this. So in this one thing, it's an angel. 
that to the use of actions, fair and good. Use here is like getting used to or getting in the habit of fair and good actions. He likewise, in the same way, he gives a frock or livery. Those are just different kinds of clothes. Specifically, a frock was usually what a priest or monk would wear, and livery is what a servant would wear. It's like a uniform that aptly is put on, that readily or easily is put on. So just like habit can get you used to bad things, it's also easy to put on this garment of good habits. He continues, Refrain tonight, and that shall lend a kind of easiness to the next abstinence, the next more easy. So if you don't have sex with Claudius tonight, that will make it much easier the next time you abstain, which is another word for refrain, not literally sexual abstinence. The next more easy, the next time you stop, it'll be even easier. For use almost can change the stamp of nature and either master the devil or throw him out with wondrous potency. For use, because these repeated actions, these habits, can almost change the stamp of nature. In other words, the original design of nature. So you can change almost anything in your life if you just do it a few times over and over. I actually once read that all you need to do to change habits is to do something different for three weeks, which is pretty cool. Nice call, Shakespeare. And that habit can either master the devil, so it can either control these evil habits, or it can throw him out entirely with wondrous potency, potency being like power or effectiveness. I should say, the word master, which I used in master the devil, is not actually in any texts. There is a missing word there, which none of the texts have. So master is the word that they inserted there as their best guess. And he says, once more, good night. He's going to say good night three or four times before he leaves. And when you are desirous to be blessed, I'll blessing beg of you. When you are desirous, when you want to be blessed, I'll blessing beg of you. I'll beg a blessing from you. What would she be blessed for? Maybe for doing good? There's actually a very similar image in King Lear and a scene between Lear and Cordelia of turning the tables on blessing, almost as though Hamlet feels bad and conflicted about what he said to her and how he said it. And only then again, he remembers what he's done. He sees the body of Polonius on the floor and he says... For this same Lord, I do repent. In other words, for this Lord here, I do repent. I'm really sorry that I killed him. But, and this is really interesting, he says, But heaven hath pleased it so, to punish me with this, and this with me, that I must be their scourge and minister. Pleased here means desired or thought it appropriate. So it's almost as though heaven decided to punish me with this and this with me. So Hamlet is being punished by having to deal with Polonius, and Polonius is being punished by having Hamlet kill him, that I must be their scourge and minister. A scourge is a tool for punishing. It's literally a kind of whip. And a minister is like an agent who carries out actions. So it's almost as though he works for heaven. And it's his job to do these terrible things to the world. You'll sometimes hear some of the great Eastern conquerors described as the scourge of Christendom. Almost as though heaven had selected them to punish Europe. So it's another instance of Hamlet being really ambivalent. That he has this terrible job that he has to carry out for heaven, for his father. And he says, I will bestow him and will answer well the death I gave him. So bestow means dispose of him, take care of the body, and will answer well. In other words, I will face the consequences of the death I gave him. So he realizes he's going to have to take responsibility for this, both in this life and the next one. So again, good night. I think this is good night number three. I must be cruel only to be kind. This is kind of a rationalization of his behavior, but he says, I have to do these terrible things only to do good things. Thus bad begins and worse remains behind. Behind is a little confusing here. It literally means to come in the future. So this is starting badly, and it's only going to get worse in the future. And notice, too, this is a rhyming couplet, almost as though he expects the scene to end here. But of course, he can't resist. He has to keep talking. He says, one word more, good lady. Like, just one more thing. And Gertrude says, what shall I do? And then we get a super confusing passage, which I will try to make the most sense of that I can. He says, not this by no means that I bid you do, which would seem to read like, don't do this thing by any means that I'm about to tell you to do. Almost as though he's prefacing it with sarcasm, like, this thing I'm about to tell you, 
Definitely don't do any of these things. Let the bloat king tempt you again to bed, pinch wanton on your cheek, call you his mouse, and let him for a pair of reachy kisses or paddling in your neck with his damned fingers make you to ravel all this matter out that I essentially am not in madness, but mad in craft. So here's all the things that you shouldn't do. Let the bloat king, bloat here because he's bloated from food and drink, tempt you again to bed, get you into the sack, pinch wanton, wanton meaning like sexually or lasciviously, on your cheek call you his mouse. These are all kind of like gross lovey-dovey things that Hamlet doesn't want her to do. And let him, in other words, don't let him, for a pair of reachy kisses, reachy being like smelly, or paddling in your neck with his damned fingers. Again, this is Hamlet's gross imagination of the sex life of his mom and his uncle, that you can just see him like paddling in her neck. So don't let him do any of these things. Why? Because he would make you to ravel all this matter out. Ravel is like unravel or reveal all the things she knows. And what does she know? That I essentially am not in madness, but mad in craft. Remember we heard earlier that idea of crafty madness? This is, by the way, the first time in a long time that Hamlet has admitted that this is all an act. And I've heard a lot of critics say, is Hamlet crazy? Is he not crazy? Well, right here he says, I am not actually crazy. I don't know if you want to take him at his word, but that's what he says. Whatever you do, don't let him convince you to tell him that I'm not really crazy. And then he says, "'Twere good you let him know, for who that's but a queen, fair, sober, wise, with from a paddock, from a bat, a jib, such dear concerning's hide, who would do so?" I think this is also why this speech is so confusing, because it's all kind of in opposites or in sarcasm. Because what it's saying is, oh, it's really good if you let him know that I'm not crazy. Sober here doesn't have to do with drinking. It's like serious or sensible. So anyone who's truly queenly, who's beautiful and wise and serious, would from a paddock, a paddock is a kind of toad, from a bat, a jib, which is another word for a cat, such dear concerning's hide. Dear concerning's are like important matters. So who would hide such an important thing, even from these disgusting animals? So in some way, he's also comparing Claudius to those animals. That's why this seems to me a little sarcastic or backwards. No, and despite of sense and secrecy, unpeg the basket on the house's top, let the birds fly, and like the famous ape to try conclusions, in the basket creep and break your own neck down. So he's getting pretty worked up at her. I think he thinks she's going to tell on him. So in despite of, in spite of sense and secrecy. So it would be totally sensible and secret to not tell him. That'll save you. So in spite of that, unpeg the basket. Unpeg means open the clasp on the basket. And you're asking, what basket? Well, this comes from a story about a house with a basket of birds on top of it. And there's a monkey who opens up that basket and lets all the birds fly out. And so the conclusion it makes is that if you get into the basket, then you'll be able to fly. So the monkey releases the birds and then gets into the basket itself and jumps out of the basket and falls to the ground and breaks its neck and dies. Why is the ape famous? It's not like King Kong. It's because it's in a famous story. To try conclusions is like to conduct an experiment and then break your own neck down. The down part is falling to the ground, in other words. So in this case, the comparison he's making is that the birds in the basket are like his secrets and she'll let out his secrets. But if she does, it's going to harm her. That's how I think it anyway. It's pretty obscure. So I think he's being pretty withering and sarcastic in this part of the speech, but it's very hard to perform because it's all backwards. So basically he's swearing her to secrecy and she says, be thou assured if words be made of breath and breath of life, I have no life to breathe what thou hast said to me. So if he's worried about her saying the words that he said to her, so she sets up this chain of actions. If he's worried about her saying the words that he said to her, she's saying, I don't have any life. And because of that, I don't have any breath. And because I don't have any breath, I don't have any words. So I'm never going to be able to tell him what you told me. It's a pretty elaborate and poetic way to just say, I won't tell. And then Hamlet remembers. He says, I must to England. You know that? Must just being short for I must go. Now you may ask, how does Hamlet know this? This is what leads me to believe that maybe he's hiding during that whole previous scene and overhears that whole conversation between the king and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. But you never know. And Gertrude apparently knows this too. She's in on Claudius's plan. She says, alack, I had forgot. 
Alack is sort of the old-timey version of oh no. He's so concluded on. Concluded on means it's been decided or determined. And Hamlet says, there's letters sealed. And my two schoolfellows, whom I will trust as I will adders fanged, they bear the mandate. So the letters he's talking about are the sealed commissions that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are carrying to the King of England. And my two schoolfellows, in other words, my two old friends from school, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, whom I will trust as I will adders fanged. It's a really cool image. Adders are poisonous snakes, so he trusts them as much as he does poisonous snakes with teeth. They bear the mandate. They're carrying the official orders. And he goes on, They must sweep my way and marshal me to knavery. Sweep my way means something like prepare the way in front of me and marshal me to knavery. Marshal means direct me or conduct me to knavery. And knavery in this sense is like trickery or treachery. So they're carrying me to this bad place. But Hamlet isn't worried. He says, Let it work. For tis the sport to have the engineer hoist with his own petard. Famous line alert, hoist with his own petard. Well, this actually means something. So let it work. Let this go forward. Tis the sport. It's almost like he's saying it's really fun to have the engineer. An engineer is someone who builds bombs. Hoist with his own petard. Hoist means blown up into the air, almost like you're being hoisted upwards with his own petard. And a petard is like a bomb or an explosive device. This is sort of like the image of a terrorist working on a bomb in his apartment and then it blowing up on him and killing him. So Hamlet's going to enjoy when their plans go wrong and take them out. This is a very cruel Hamlet. It's almost as though now that he's killed someone, he's used to it, and he's willing to do almost anything. And he continues in that same vein. He says, And it shall go hard, but I will delve one yard below their minds, and below them at the moon. It shall go hard, but means it will be bad if I don't. Delve one yard below their minds. Delve means dig. And mines are tunnels that you dig under a target or under enemy walls so that you can place explosives and then blow them up. So it's a way to get behind enemy lines or through their fortifications. So he's going to dig under the digging, and he's going to blow them at the moon. It's another explosion metaphor. He's going to blow them up into the sky. And then he seems to enjoy this a little too much. He says, oh, tis most sweet when in one line two crafts directly meet. So after he talked about the sport, he says it's sweet when in one line two crafts, crafts are like plottings or plans, directly meet. They meet in exactly the same place. So I think in this case, the two crafts are Rosencrantz and Guildenstern plotting against Hamlet and Hamlet plotting against them. So it's great when it works out that he can finally take them down. This guy is enjoying this a little too much. And then he turns back to Polonius and he starts doing these kind of weird jokes. He says, this man shall set me packing. And set me packing is a pun. It can either mean it'll make me go. It makes me pack and have to leave because he just killed this guy. But also since he has to take Polonius out of the room, set me packing can mean start carrying, almost like a pack horse has to carry something on its back. So it has both meanings at once. And he has another joke on that same topic. He says, I'll lug the guts into the neighbor room. That's a little cold to describe Polonius as the guts now, but there you go. Neighbor just means like neighboring room, the next room over. And then one more time he says, mother, good night. But he can't resist making one more joke. Indeed, this counselor is now most still, most secret, and most grave, who was in life a foolish, prating knave. I know he killed Polonius accidentally, but he's really rubbing it in here. Almost like he's glad this guy's dead. This counselor, this counselor to the king, is now most still, most secret. Secret meaning he's able to keep secrets and most grave. Grave meaning solemn, but it also has a pun on the thing you're buried in when you're dead. So all of a sudden he's so quiet. Who was in life a foolish prating knave. Prating mean like babbling or blathering. This is a guy who could never shut up in life. And now he's so quiet, he doesn't talk at all. He can keep any secret you want. That joke is cold, man. You just killed a guy. And then he talks to Polonius. Come, sir, to draw toward an end with you. And draw toward an end is another pun. Usually it means bring our discussion to an end. But in this case, it also means drag you to your final resting place, you know? And then one last, I think this is either the fifth or the sixth time he says it, but now he means it. Good night, mother. 
and she's left alone, pretty emotionally wrecked, having just seen her son kill a guy, and with instructions not to tell Claudius anything. This is a bombshell of a scene. So Act 3 ends with this giant cataclysm. Hamlet knows for sure that it's Claudius who killed his father, but Claudius also knows that he knows, and Hamlet's also confronted his mother about it, so everything's open. But he's also made a giant mistake in killing Polonius. And whatever happens now, these characters are on a collision course. Also, one thing about the rhythm of the play, plays have rhythms just like individual lines do, and we've just gotten through a stretch in Act 2 and 3 of long, long scenes. So there's been a kind of steady flow to the play, and we have a sense of movement forward, of tension building, but after the events of the end of Act 3, the action really starts to roll downhill, and this giant snowball of action starts to develop, moving faster and faster and faster to the inevitable conclusion in Act 5. So after all these long scenes, Act 4 starts with a series of short scenes. It's almost like a chase sequence, a cat and mouse game between Hamlet and Claudius. So these are much shorter, faster scenes to rocket the rhythm of the play forward. And there is what you might call an odd edit between Act 3, Scene 4, and Act 4, Scene 1. Usually what marks a new scene is that you have all the characters exiting the previous scene and a whole bunch of new characters entering the next scene. And what's strange about this act transition here is that Gertrude is the last one left on stage at the end of Act 3, Scene 4, and at the beginning of Act 4, Scene 1, she's entering with the King and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, having apparently already told them something. It's almost like there's been a cinematic fade to black, or a crossfade. It's an oddly untheatrical thing to do. And who knows, they didn't have intermissions at Elizabethan plays, but I suppose it's possible there was a brief interlude or something, so people could all go get an orange or use the bathroom or something. But it's an odd feature. It's also possible that this is just continuous action, that Gertrude is left on stage and we have Claudius enter to her. And again, Act 4, Scene 1 starts in that awesome way of joining a conversation already in progress. Because Claudius' first line to her is, There's matter in these sighs, these profound heaves. And we might ask, what sighs, what profound heaves? And matter, remember that phrase, more matter with less art? Matter means substance or meaning. And profound doesn't mean meaningful, which is how we use it today. It means deep, like a deep well. Later in the play, they'll refer to the profoundest pit. And heaves are just another way of saying sighs, when you think about that sound. Heave. So there's some hidden meaning in these sighs. And he goes on, you must translate. Tis fit we understand them. So you have to translate the sighs into their meaning, almost like they're in a foreign language. Tis fit, it's appropriate, it's important even, that we understand what they mean. And remember, Claudius knew that Hamlet was going to go see Gertrude. Who knows how long has elapsed since that meeting, but he hasn't heard from Polonius yet. And he comes in and he sees Gertrude, a wreck here, sighing. So his first question is, where is your son? And notice how that's a very short line. It isn't finished. Where's your son? Where's the rest of that line? It seems to indicate a bit of a silence there. And this is a big deal. So Gertrude turns to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and says, bestow this place on us a little while. In other words, let us have this place to ourselves for a little while. And as soon as those guys clear the room, she says, ah, mine own Lord, what have I seen tonight? And he says back, what Gertrude? How does Hamlet? Another short line, by the way. And she says, mad as the sea and wind when both contend which is the mightier. And this is a really pivotal moment because the first word she says when he asks how Hamlet is, is mad. And remember, at the end of the last scene, his specific instruction to her was to not tell Claudius that he was mad in craft. And now she's really torn between her son and her husband. Maybe somewhere in her heart, she's realized that Claudius killed her husband. So the first thing she tells him is that Hamlet really is crazy. And how crazy? As crazy as the sea and wind when both contend, contend meaning fighting over or arguing to figure out which is the mightier. So it's like this giant clash between natural forces. If you can imagine the sea during a storm, that's how crazy he is. When the sea and the wind fight to figure out which is stronger. And then she breaks the news to him. In his lawless fit, behind the arras hearing something stir, whips out his rapier, cries, a rat, a rat, and in this brainish apprehension kills the unseen good old man. 
Lawless here doesn't just mean illegal, it means wild, out of control. So he's in a fit of madness. Behind the arras, behind that curtain, he hears something stir, something moving. Whips out his rapier. A rapier is a sharp dueling sword. You use it for stabbing instead of slashing. So it's just the kind of thing to kill someone behind a curtain with. Cries, a rat, a rat, which is true. We remember hearing that. And in this brainish apprehension, brainish is an incredible word. It means deranged or crazy. And apprehension is a belief. So maybe this deranged belief is that there is a rat back there. He kills the unseen good old man. And that's such a big deal that Claudius won't even let her finish her verse line. He jumps in with, oh, heavy deed. Heavy meaning serious or dire. And obviously he's sad about Polonius, but his mind immediately jumps to the logical conclusion. He says, it had been so with us had we been there. It had been so, meaning it would have been the same way with us, with me. So at once Claudius thinks of the ramifications for himself. If he had been behind that curtain, he would have been the one who died. And this is a catastrophe for him. He says, his liberty is full of threats to all, to you yourself, to us, to everyone. His liberty is Hamlet being allowed to remain free, just running around doing whatever he wants. It's full of threats to all. And who's all? To you, to Gertrude, to us, in other words, to Claudius, to everyone, to the entire kingdom. So he's already selling this to her politically. And this is a huge problem. He says, alas, how shall this bloody deed be answered? There's that phrase bloody deed again from the previous scene. Both Gertrude and Hamlet used it, and now Claudius has it. And answered here means responded to, probably both Claudius's response and the response of other people who hear it. Because the next thing he thinks is, it will be laid to us, whose providence should have kept short, restrained, and out of haunt this mad young man. Laid to us means blamed on us. In other words, blamed on Claudius, whose providence, we usually hear about divine providence. In other words, God planning all of our futures. But in this case, he's talking about his own providence, which here means thinking ahead or foresight, seeing what was going to happen before it happened. He's saying he should have kept short. The images of an animal on a short leash, basically it means kept him under control and restrained and out of haunt. Haunt just means larger company, society at large. Funny word to use in a play with a ghost in it. They should have kept this mad young man out of circulation. And then he says something that's just for Gertrude. He says, But so much was our love, we would not understand what was most fit. But like the owner of a foul disease, to keep it from divulging, let it feed even on the pith of life. Yeah, I'm sure it was because of Claudius's extreme love for Hamlet that he did all this. He claims that because of his love, we would not, in other words, we refused to understand what was most fit, what was the appropriate or correct thing to do. But instead of that, like the owner of a foul disease. Owner in this case means someone who's infected with a terrible disease. To keep it from divulging, meaning to keep it from being discovered by other people that you had the disease, you let it feed even on the pith of life. Pith being like the essential or central part. We still have the word pit to describe what's at the center of a fruit. So the images of someone with a disease who doesn't want anybody to know they have it, so they let it slowly kill them. That's what he says he's done with Hamlet. And now he definitely has to take care of this. He says to her, where is he gone? And Gertrude says, to draw apart the body he hath killed, or whom his madness, like some ore among a mineral of metal's base, shows itself pure. Draw apart doesn't mean take it apart into little pieces. Ooh, gross. It means to take it away somewhere. So he's gone somewhere else with this body, or whom his very madness, like some ore among a mineral of metal's base. By ore, we usually mean a rock with metal in it. What they mean here is just the metal. It's like a vein of precious metal, like silver or gold, among a mineral. Mineral here isn't the rock. It's like a mine. Where you get this from? A mineral of metal's base. Base metals are basically non-precious metals. Shows itself pure. So just as you can see that vein of silver or gold in a mine of base metals, it stands out. What she's saying is his madness is the same way. And that's why he did what he did which seems to imply that he has separate mad and sane parts. They're not mixed up. 
So he's not all mad. It seems to imply that he can be fixed. She's really pleading for his life here. And how does she know that? Because he weeps for what is done. So he had this crazy moment, a temporary insanity, but now he's crying for what he did. But Claudius doesn't want to hear that. He said, oh, Gertrude, come away. Let's go. The sun no sooner shall the mountains touch, but we will ship him hence. So as soon as the sun touches the mountains, in other words, first thing in the morning, we will ship him hence, hence meaning away from here, on a boat. And this vile deed, we must with all our majesty and skill, both countenance and excuse. So this vile deed, this awful thing he did, we must with all our majesty and skill. Basically, it's going to take all his ability to both countenance, which means confront, face up to, because countenance was another word for face, and excuse. So I'm going to have to face up to it, but I'm also going to have to find a way to excuse the fact that he just killed this important guy. So now it's time to put that plan into action. He calls off stage. Oh, Guildenstern! And in rushes Guildenstern, who I'm sure was listening at the door, with Rosencrantz trailing right behind him. And he says to them, Friends both, go join you with some further aid. Further aid means more people to help you, not just the two of you, because the two of them can't take Hamlet. So join up with some other people. And then he's going to break the news to them. He says, Hamlet in madness hath Polonius slain, and from his mother's closet hath he dragged him. Oof, that's not good news. That means Hamlet is a killer, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are in trouble. So in a moment of craziness, he killed Polonius, and from his mother's closet, remember that little chamber or room, hath he dragged him. You know, just follow the trail of blood. He goes on, go seek him out, speak fair, and bring the body into the chapel. So go find him. Speak fair. Fair just means nicely or courteously. Remember, this is maybe a dangerous lunatic, so they have to be really careful around him. And bring the body into the chapel. I also think this is kind of a gorgeous-sounding line, quite apart from the meaning. You have those two hard-stressed syllables of speak fair. You have the echo of seek and speak. You have the repeated B sounds of bring the body. It's all incredibly clear and impactful even though there's no poetic images here. And then to hurry them along, he says, I pray you hasten this. In other words, I'm asking you, hurry up in this. And they rush out to find him. And then he turns back to her. He says, come, Gertrude, we'll call up our wisest friends and let them know both what we mean to do and what's untimely done. So their last advisor is no more. They're going to need new advisors. We're going to call our smartest friends up. And we're going to let them know two things, both what we mean to do, what we intend to do now, and what's untimely done. Untimely means before its time, since Polonius shouldn't have died this young. So we have to tell our closest advisors what happened and what we're going to do about it. And then this scene ends with a weird little passage. It's only in one of the texts, and a whole big chunk of it is missing, so it's been reconstructed. What you'll usually hear is this phrase, So happily slander, whose whisper o'er the world's diameter, as level as the cannon to his blank, transports his poison shot, may miss our name and hit the woundless air. It's an incredible poetic image. But that first phrase, so happily slander, isn't in any of the texts. It's just a blank there. So that's just one early editor's guess for these missing words. This is definitively not written by Shakespeare. It had to be filled in by some other guy. But the gist is, so happily, so perhaps slander, because people are going to talk about this and wonder what happened, and they'll accuse the king of being involved. And then there's this big parenthetical, whose whisper or the world's diameter... It's cool that slander has a whisper, because you can just imagine one person spreading the rumor to the next, to the next, to the next, or the world's diameter. We obviously know that term from a circle in geometry, but here it just means the whole length of the world, as level as the cannon to his blank. Level means, like, well-aimed. When you think of leveling a gun at a target, it's that same image. As level as the cannon to his blank. A blank is a target. Transports his poisoned shot. Shot being the bullets or cannonballs in that cannon. So it's the image of slander as a sort of poisonous cannonball that shoots across the whole world and inevitably hits its target. So what he's hoping is that slander may miss our name and hit the woundless air. So he doesn't want to be hit by that cannon. He doesn't want his name injured in that way. Instead, he hopes it will hit the woundless air, which means that it can't be wounded. So it's as though the shot of slander will just miss him by a few feet, if their plan works to perfection. But again, this section is only in one text. 
And then he finishes, oh, come away. And notice he's already told her they're going. I've seen some performances where Gertrude resists a little bit. And this is maybe the first crack in their relationship after Hamlet went after Claudius and Gertrude in that scene. So those repeated come aways might be an interesting way to show the fissures between them. And he ends the scene with a rhyming couplet. My soul is full of discord and dismay. It's really cool, those two dis words. Dismay, obviously, we know. Discord, you may have heard as a musical term, but it can mean chaos. But discord and dismay is a great sounding end to a scene. That scene was so fast, and now we're already into the next one. They're chasing after Hamlet. And here's Hamlet somewhere in the castle in Act 4, Scene 2. And he has a second alone, and he says, safely stowed. Stowed just meaning hidden, presumably the body, because he doesn't have the body with him anymore. It'd be pretty impractical to have an actor dragging a body across the stage for 20 minutes. But it's more than just the body is hidden safely. There's that cool double S sound of safely stowed. And then we hear the guys off stage chasing him. Hamlet! Lord Hamlet! And he hears that noise and says, either to himself or just to the audience, but soft. Soft meaning, wait, do you hear that? What noise? Who calls on Hamlet? Oh, here they come. And Rosencrantz and Guildenstern burst in. And Rosencrantz says, what have you done, my lord, with the dead body? And since Hamlet laid it all on the table with them in his last scene, that same tone is here now. He says, compounded it with dust, whereto tis kin. It's a non-answer. It's very witty, but it's no help whatsoever with them. Compounded means mixed up. Where to tis kin. Kin is a related word to kind. We still hear it today as like a close relative. So I've mixed the body up with dust, with dirt, which it's a very close relative to. Remember that dust to dust idea that we all come from dust and we all return to dust? So he seems to be implying that he's buried the body. And Rosencrantz doesn't want to hear any of that. He says, tell us where tis, that we may take it thence and bear it to the chapel. So just tell us where the body is. I don't want any of your jokes. That we may take it thence, that we may take it from there, from wherever it's hidden, and bear it and carry it to the chapel. So it's a real commandment. And then Hamlet just shoots back at them. Do not believe it. Rosencrantz says, believe what? He is sick of him by now. And Hamlet says, that I can keep your counsel and not mine own. Keep counsel means keep a secret. What's their secret? Maybe their secret mission for Claudius and Gertrude. So don't believe that I can keep your secret and that I can't keep my own secret. Remember, he still hasn't told them why he's been depressed. So it's another head on this old business between them. He goes on, besides, to be demanded of a sponge? What replication should be made by the son of a king? Demanded of means questioned by. And then replication is just a fancy way of saying reply. But he's obviously mocking their sucking up ways. They're using these big words around important people trying to get in with them. He does this a lot through the play. He'll do it in the later scene too, where he fancies up the words to make fun of one of these puffed up courtiers. So if I'm going to be asked questions by a sponge, what reply should I, a prince, have? And it's the same trick as the recorder's scene. He has an image and they don't get it. So Rosencrantz says, take you me for a sponge, my lord. Notice, by the way, what he's already done in this scene. He's talking in prose. It's that same madness technique that gets people out of talking the way they want to talk and gets them to talk the way he wants to talk in that more chaotic way. So Rosencrantz says, take you me for a sponge, my lord. And what says, I, sir, yeah, that soaks up the king's countenance, his rewards, his authorities. Now, countenance literally means face or looks. But imagine if that face or look was looking approvingly on you. So here it really means the king's patronage or treating you well. Same thing with his rewards, his authorities. Authorities are authoritative opinions or commands. And so what he's saying is that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and all these other courtiers are just soaking that up, just mopping up every little tidbit that the king gives them. But he goes on. But such officers do the king best service in the end. He keeps them like an ape in the corner of his jaw. First mouthed to be last swallowed. So how do these spongy officers do the king their best service? Because he keeps them like an ape. And they're not the apes here. What this implies is that he keeps them like an ape keeps food. So you'll sometimes see a monkey keep a little bit of food in his cheek, in the corner of his jaw, to save it, you know, in case he needs to run away quickly. 
first mouth, in other words, first put into the mouth, to be last swallowed. When he needs what you have gleaned, it is but squeezing you. And sponge, you shall be dry again. When he needs what you have gleaned, again, that word gleaned means picked up or collected, maybe from clues, basically all the little dirty work they've done for him, it is but squeezing you. So this sponge is full of all these good things that it's soaked up. And how does the king get it out of them? He squeezes them until they're dry. Which seems to imply that Hamlet's saying, you can keep working for this guy, but it is not going to turn out well for you. All he's going to do is squeeze you out and throw you out. You may be first mouthed, but you'll be last swallowed. And just like in the last scene here, Rosencrantz says, I understand you not, my lord. Hamlet snaps back. I'm glad of it. A knavish speech sleeps in a foolish ear. Knavish meaning rascally or insulting. And then that image of it sleeping in a foolish ear. It seems to imply that it can't be understood by a foolish person. Almost as though it's sleeping in the outer ear and never even gets in. He's just too smart for them, and they're idiots. But Rosencrantz doesn't have time for this. He says, my lord, you must tell us where the body is and go with us to the king. He's really trying to lay down the law with them. But Hamlet just starts punning. He says, the body is with the king, but the king is not with the body. So there's a lot of things this could mean. One way to think about this is how they used to talk about the king's rule. You may have heard this expression, the body politic. There's this idea that the king has a private body and a public body. You know, he's a private citizen, but he sort of wears this king's suit. And that public part is not truly part of him. It's that body politic, which is how you can have a king die and the kingship go on because it succeeds to the next person. So obviously Rosencrantz is asking about Polonius's body, but Hamlet may be talking about the body of the people at large. And you have that cool ABBA structure again. The body is with the king, but the king is not with the body. Almost to imply that anyone can be king, that Hamlet can be king when Claudius dies. And then he goes on. The king is a thing, which is a funny little Dr. Seuss kind of rhyme. Guildenstern says, a thing, my lord? And then Hamlet finishes his thought. Of nothing. So one implication of that may be that idea of the body politic again. Yeah, he's the king, but he's also a human. He can be killed. There's also that other sense of nothing we talked about in the play within the play scene. Nothing as no thing, which is a pretty deep insult on the king, implying that he doesn't have a thing. Insulting his manhood? Good God. But finally, he's had enough fun leading them around in circles. And finally, he says to them, bring me to him. And then his last line is, hide fox and all after. All after means everybody chase after. And this could either refer to a fox hunt where the fox hides and all the dogs and horses and men try to catch him. Or it could just refer to a childhood game where one person is the fox and everybody else has to chase them. Maybe it's a game they played when they were kids. I don't know. And one of the ways this scene usually ends is that Hamlet sort of presents himself to them to be taken away. And then as soon as they get close to him, he runs away and they have to chase after him, which is another thing that can give this set of scenes a real galloping feel to it. If there's actual running going on, that you get the real feeling of a chase. Because as soon as they chase him out, we go right into Act 4, Scene 3, and we see the king. And the king has another mini monologue. It's interesting. He's getting to talk to the audience more and more. And we really get a sense here of a guy under pressure from all sides and starting to show the strain. He's clearly worried while Hamlet is still on the loose. He says, I have sent to seek him and to find the body. By the way, these are almost exactly the words he used two scenes ago when he was giving Rosencrantz and Guildenstern the assignment. Just to remind us what the plot is. Yeah, we know. And then he gets a reflection to himself. How dangerous is it that this man goes loose? Yet must not we put the strong law on him? This is a really cool line because you'll notice every word in this is a single syllable. It slows the line down. It makes it more emphasized. A lot of those are stressed syllables. Strong law. Must not we is a kind of cool inversion of we must not. And the law here just means the punishment that the law prescribes for murder, which is execution probably. So it's dangerous that these guys going loose, but we can't actually punish him as we need to. And why not? He's loved of the distracted multitude, who like not in their judgment, but their eyes. He's loved of, he's loved by the distracted multitude. In other words, the stupid general public loves him. 
who like not in their judgment, but their eyes. In other words, they don't like, they don't form positive opinions of a person by using their judgment, their rational judgment. No, what they use is their eyes. In other words, the person's outward appearance. It's kind of ironic to see Claudius, who's the master of outward appearance, getting upset that Hamlet appeals to the public that way. It's that same image of a rotten interior and an apparently beautiful, healthy exterior. Remember, if the people had treated him with rational judgment, he wouldn't be the king. But the public still thinks Hamlet is this great guy. And he says, and where tis so, the offender's scourge is weighed, but never the offense. So wherever that's the case that people judge by outward appearance, the offender's scourge is weighed. Scourge means his punishment or his suffering. Like they get really upset if he tortured or executed Hamlet. Weighed just means considered seriously, but never the offense. So they don't care what Hamlet did. All they care about is what happens to Hamlet because of their bad judgment. So he's really in a bind. There's not much he can do to Hamlet or he's going to suffer political consequences. In some ways, that's why it's been so important for Claudius to have Hamlet as his ally, which he's been trying to get him to be the whole play. Because he needs that image of Hamlet being on board, this popular young prince. So what is his plan? To bear all smooth and even? This sudden sending him away must seem deliberate pause. To bear, to manage everything smoothly and evenly. This sudden sending him away, you get that double S sound, must seem deliberate pause. Pause meaning like real consideration or thought. So the fact that we're sending him away this suddenly has to appear like we've spent a lot of time thinking about it. And he concludes... Diseases desperate grown by desperate appliance are relieved or not at all. So there's that idea of Hamlet as a disease again. He used it the last time we saw him and he's going to use it again in this scene. So diseases that grow desperate, in other words, they've really progressed and taken over the body by desperate appliance, not appliance like a washing machine or a refrigerator. It means applying remedies. So cure. So if you have a really bad disease that's gotten out of hand, you need a really bad cure. You got to really go over the top. They're relieved, in other words, cured or not at all. So if it's gotten this out of hand, you need to take a really severe step or it's never going to get cured. Notice, by the way, all the hard D sounds in that line. Deliberate, diseases, desperate, desperate. This is a guy who's wound really tightly. And finally, in comes Rosencrantz. And the king has to know immediately what's going on. His entire future hinges on this. He says, how now? What hath befallen? Befallen meaning what's happened or what's taken place. And Rosencrantz replies, where the dead body is bestowed, my lord, we cannot get from him. Bestowed usually means located or hidden. Remember Polonius saying we're going to bestow ourselves behind the arras? Well, now he's bestowed, all right. So we can't get from him where he hid the dead body. Okay, that's not great. But Claudius says, but where is he? Oh, good news. Without, my lord. Guarded to know your pleasure. Without being the opposite of within. It means outside. He's guarded to know your pleasure. Your pleasure, not in our sense of that, but in the sense of what do you want done with him? What would please you to do to him? Well, that's good news, at least. You have him. And Claudius says, bring him before us. And Rosencrantz calls out, Oh, Guildenstern, bring in my lord. My lord here being Hamlet. And so Hamlet, who's probably tied up or secured in some way, is thrown into the room. And Claudius is going to question him, but he can't take a single misstep or people will know his secret. He has to be the good king. He says, now Hamlet, where's Polonius? And Hamlet just says back simply, at supper. Oh, great. Claudius thinks he's going to screw with him now. At supper, where? And then Hamlet pulls his same trick again. He takes Claudius's orderly, managed verse scene, and he hijacks it into being a prose scene, which is chaotic and is sure to drive Claudius crazy. So where is he at supper? Not where he eats, but where he is eaten. It's almost like a riddle. So he's not eating supper. He's being eaten as supper. By whom? A certain convocation of politic worms are e'en at him. Notice that high language again. It's courtier's language that he's making fun of. A convocation is like a council or an assembly of politic worms. Politic being like political means like shrewd or scheming, just like Polonius was. Isn't that always the way you're eaten by exactly the same kind of worms you were in life? They're e'en at him. They're just now going at him. And then Hamlet has a little philosophical aside from that. He says, your worm is your only emperor for diet. 
for diet here means when it comes to his diet. So the worm is the only emperor? This is a hell of a thing to say to the king. And what goes on? We fat all creatures else to fat us. And we fat ourselves for maggots. So fat here meaning fatten up, like you would fatten up an animal for slaughter. So all creatures else, all other creatures, all the other ones we eat, to fat us, to fatten ourselves. So we fatten up a cow just so we can get fatter by eating it. And we fat ourselves for maggots. We fatten ourselves up so that maggots can eat us when we die. Gross, right? Your fat king and your lean beggar is but variable service. Two dishes, but to one table. Variable service means different courses. So maybe the skinny beggar is the appetizer and the fat king is the main course. Two dishes, but to one table, to only one table. It's also a fun way for him to get in a dig at Claudius for being fat. But what he's saying is that no matter your station in life, no matter how rich or poor you were, you go to the same table in the end, and that's the worm's table. He says, that's the end. Not only is that the end of his speech, but that's the end of humanity. And it's interesting also hearing Hamlet right after he's killed Polonius and become a killer like Claudius to be thinking a lot about death. And all Claudius can say is, alas, alas. Almost as though he's publicly demonstrating how sad he is that Hamlet is crazy. But I'm sure he's burning up inside. But Hamlet isn't done yet, actually. He says, a man may fish with the worm that hath eat of a king and eat of the fish that hath fed of that worm. So you can take one of those worms that ate the body of a king after he died. And when you catch a fish with that, it's as though you're eating the king. And Claudius says, what does thou mean by this? Hamlet says, nothing but to show you how a king may go a progress through the guts of a beggar. This is a nice dig too. Go a progress means march in a royal procession. What he's saying is, I'm showing you how a poor beggar may in a way end up eating a king. But it's a really cool image of a royal procession, the kind that would happen down the streets. Probably the kind that happened when Claudius was crowned, where everyone cheers for him and they throw confetti and they yell hip hip hooray, God save the king and that kind of thing. But instead of the streets, he's marching down a beggar's guts since he's dead. It's an incredible image, right? And Claudius has heard enough of that. He says, where is Polonius? Clearly, Hamlet's madness plan is getting to him. Claudius can't deal with someone who won't talk to him on reasonable terms. Where is Polonius? Hamlet says, in heaven. Yeah, yeah. He says, send thither to see. In other words, send a messenger there to see if he's there. If your messenger find him not there, seek him in the other place yourself. The other place, of course, being hell. So if your messenger can't find him in heaven, why don't you go straight to hell and see if you can find him there? Can't imagine Claudius likes that very much. He probably gets it, too. Finally, Hamlet says, but indeed, if you find him not within this month, you shall nose him as you go up the stair into the lobby. Nose him being a hilarious way of saying smell him. So if you can't find him within a month, you'll be able to find him by the smell of his body decomposing as you go up the stair into the lobby. So he's probably just hanging out under the stairs. And Claudius says, go seek him there. And a few of his attendants run out to go find the body. And Hamlet calls after them. He will stay till you come. Stay meaning wait. He's going to wait for you. He's not going to run away. Yeah, no kidding, guy. He's dead. So they really don't need to run after him. And finally, Claudius is going to try and take control back of this scene. And how does he do it? He goes back into verse. As though he's saying to Hamlet, nice try with the chaos, orders back. He says, Hamlet, this deed for thine especial safety, which we do tender as we dearly grieve for that which thou hast done, must send thee hence with fiery quickness. Especial here means your particular, your individual safety. And then there's a parenthetical about that safety, which we do tender, tender meaning we care about, as we dearly grieve, as we're deeply sad for that which thou hast done, for the thing you did. So we care about you just as much as we're really upset about the thing you did. So for your safety, this deed must send thee hence. So it's the deed that's sending you away from here with fiery quickness, as quick as fire, maybe as quick as lightning. Therefore, prepare thyself. The bark is ready, and the wind did help, the associates tend, and everything is bent for England. The bark is ready. In other words, the ship is ready that's going to take you. The wind did help. 
meaning that the wind is blowing at a strength and a direction that's going to help the journey along. The associates tend, your companions for the journey await you, short for attend, and everything is bent, bent being another form of bound, so everything is directed for England. And notice how he puts the words for England on a new line, almost so you have to pause before saying them. It's a very dramatic reveal, even though it turns out Hamlet already knows it. Hamlet says, for England, Claudius says, I, Hamlet. And Hamlet says, good. This is a very enigmatic back and forth. Just these short little lines that these two rivals are shooting across to each other. You could read almost anything into them, and it's a real playground for actors to play between the lines and with the lines. In some ways, that good is a weapon that Hamlet uses against Claudius to surprise him. And Claudius replies to Hamlet's good with, So is it, if thou knewst our purposes. Purposes here means intentions. And what Claudius seems to be implying is, Our intentions are really good, and if you could understand that, you'd know that it is good. But Hamlet responds to that in another enigmatic way. He says, I see a cherub that sees them. So cherubs were angels that observed the actions of humans on behalf of heaven and sort of delivered the messages back. So Claudius is talking about his good purposes, his good intentions. But what Hamlet is saying is, actually, I know your real intentions of sending me to England. Almost as though he's saying, I can't see exactly what you're doing with this, but I'll find it out. I can't see your purposes, but I can see an angel that sees your purposes. So it's a nice little warning shot to him before he leaves. And then Hamlet turns and says, but come for England. Come along. Let's go to England. And he sends him off one final, farewell, dear mother, just to throw a chaos bomb right into the middle of his orderly plan. Claudius says, thy loving father, Hamlet, as though he's talking to a crazy person. Because remember, Gertrude's told him that Hamlet's crazy. So, oh, crazy guy, I'm not your mother, I'm your father. It's possible also that Claudius sees right through this and is pretty sick of Hamlet's broadsides at him. So Hamlet's like, no, you're not my loving father, you're my mother. Why? Father and mother is man and wife. Man and wife is one flesh, and so my mother. He has this very witty sort of logical progression of it. A father and a mother are man and wife. In other words, husband and wife. This may be another dig at the fact that Claudius broke up his parents' marriage. And then there's this very old expression that husbands and wives become one flesh. Back in the day, this was because wives were basically owned by their husbands. But his pun on this is that they're basically the same person. So it isn't that Hamlet's mother is part of Claudius. It's that Claudius is part of his mother. It's also a nice way for Hamlet to undermine Claudius's manhood, which he loves doing. And with a final flourish, he says, come for England. Away we go. By the way, look what he just did in that last speech. He switched him back to prose again. Hamlet is always undermining Claudius's attempts to control the conversation. I think we've gone back and forth between prose and verse four or five times just in this one little scene. Because notice, as soon as Hamlet leaves, Claudius goes right into verse again to take back his power. And he's left with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. He has to give them the last instructions. He says, follow him at foot, tempt him with speed aboard. The image of following someone at foot is that your feet are right behind his. So in other words, they should stay as close to him as possible. Tempt him, urge him, with speed aboard. In other words, to board the ship as fast as he can. This is also a really cool line for sound. Follow him at foot, that double F sound. And also the meter of it has a kind of galloping, a speedy meter to it. Follow him at foot, tempt him with speed aboard. It's not follow him at foot, tempt him with speed aboard. It starts with that hard stressed follow, which kicks off the line. And then you get these fast, tempt him with speed aboard, not tempt him with speed aboard. So you can really sense the urgency of this directive. And he continues with that same urgency. He says, delay it not. I'll have him hence tonight. Hence meaning away from here. But again, you get the harshness of that double H sound. Have him hence. And then finally, away. For everything is sealed and done that else leans on the affair. Pray you make haste. I think he implies speed to them like four or five times just in these four lines. Everything is sealed and done. Sealed can mean it's determined or set. But it can also refer to those sealed orders that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are carrying to the King of England from Claudius. But basically everything is taken care of that else leans on the affair. Leans on means relates to this business. 
pray you, I beg you, make haste, hurry up, let's go. So he practically sends them running out of this room. And then he has another mini monologue. But this time it's in some ways not to the audience or even to himself. It's to a character who isn't on stage, the King of England. He says, And England, if my love thou holdst at aught, as my great power thereof may give thee sense, since yet thy cicatrice looks raw and red after the Danish sword, and thy free awe pays homage to us, thou mayst not coldly set our sovereign process, which imports it full, by letters congruing to that effect, the present death of Hamlet. That's a long sentence, but boy, how about that ending, right? So let's start back from the beginning before we get there. And England, in other words, the king of England, if my love thou holdst at aught. Love here isn't like affection. It's more like my favorable opinion of you. You hold at aught. You value at all. And then there's a parenthetical. He says, as my great power thereof may give thee sense. So if you value my love at all, since my great power over you might give you the feeling that you should value my love pretty highly. And why should England value it? Since yet thy cicatrice looks raw and red after the Danish sword. Yet here means still. And a cicatrice always sounds like some name for a kind of rooster. But what it actually is is a scar. And the image of the scar is raw and red. Almost like it's just healed. After the Danish sword. It's not a literal sword. Here it means attack or war. So England still has a raw scar from the last time that England and Denmark met in battle. So that's why England should really want him to love them. And what else? And thy free awe pays homage to us. So it's not just the fear of an attack, but it's also thy free awe. Respect that isn't compelled by force pays homage to us. And homage is the kind of money that a lord gets from a vassal or one country gets from another. Remember he was talking about England's neglected tribute to that same homage. They've sworn to pay him money, even though apparently they've gotten a little behind on that. So that's two reasons why they should have his respect. So if my love thou holdst it ought, thou mayst not coldly set our sovereign process. You may not coldly set... Coldly is just indifferently or not caring very much about it. And set means to treat. I mean, specifically, it means to ignore our sovereign process, our royal command. So if you care about our opinion of you, you really shouldn't ignore this command, which imports it full, which communicates as its complete message by letters congruing to that effect. And this is very official language, the kind that the letter probably includes. Congruing means agreeing or conforming to that effect, that outcome or intended end. And what is that outcome that it intends? The present death of Hamlet. Present meaning immediate. Oof, that's a bombshell. We've known before that Claudius planned to send Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to England with Hamlet in the hopes that that might calm him down or just get him out of the country. But now we see what's really going on and why the letters are sealed. Because inside is a message to the king that says, as soon as you get this letter, kill Hamlet. And he continues, do it, England, for like the hectic in my blood he rages, and thou must cure me. I really like that little tag, do it, England kill him. Come on, do it for me. And then here comes that same disease image again. For like the hectic in my blood he rages. Hectic is a fever, but hectic is a much more blunt and alive sounding word. So Hamlet is raging in his blood like a fever, and thou must cure me. England's going to have to cure his fever, presumably by killing off that disease. And hands this long galloping chase section with a rhyming couplet. Till I know tis done, howe'er my haps, my joys were ne'er begun. So he just asked England to do it, and then he says, until I know it's done, howe'er my haps, no matter what happens to me, no matter what fortunes befall me, my joys were ne'er begun. I won't be joyful about anything until I hear that Hamlet's been executed. And this is a real gloves-off scene. It looks for the moment like Claudius has the upper hand. We don't know how Hamlet's going to get out of this. But we're really pretty breathless from this whole sequence. It's an incredible bit of playwriting because it's sped up the pace so much that now we're legitimately wondering, what now? 
And that seems like as good a place to any to leave you in suspense. That's the end of part six. Come back for part seven, where we'll see the return of a character we haven't seen in quite some time, Ophelia, but in a different state than we've seen her before. And if you wouldn't mind taking a second, go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks. That's what makes this podcast possible. I really appreciate it. Bye.